0: The court, La Cour.
1: Good morning. Please be seated. the case of York Region District School Board against Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. For the appellant, York Region District School Board, Frank Cesario, Sean Sells, and Leslie Campbell. For the intervener, Attorney General of Canada, BJ Ray and Joseph Cheng. For the Intervenor Attorney General of Ontario, Daniel Affaker and Walid Malik. For the Intervenor Procureur General du Québec, Maître Jean-Vincent Lacroix, Maître Brigitte Bussière et Maître Geneviève Martin-Lafleur. For the Intervenor Ontario College of Teachers, Caroline Zayed, David Hakim and Lauren Weaver. For the intervener, Canadian Association of Council to Employers, George Avram, Ajantana Ananda Raj, and Juliette Mestre. Mestre. For the respondent, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, Howard Goldblatt and Kiran Kang. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Fraser Arland. For the intervener, British Columbia Teachers Federation, Robin Trask, Michael Subkin, and Vivian Juan. For the intervener, Center for Free Expression, David Wright, May J. Nam, and Rebecca Jones. For the interveners, Power Workers Union and Society of United Professionals, Andrew Loken, Michael Wright, Douglas Montgomery, and Nora Parker. For the intervener, National Police Federation, Malini Vijay Kumar and Claire Kane Boychuk. For the intervener, Ontario Principals Council, Carolyn V. Nini Jones and Cassandra E. Jarvis. For the intervenor EGAL Canada, Brendan McArthur Stevens, Bennett Jensen, and Gregory Shepard. For the intervener, David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, Susan Ursal and, Kirst- and Kristen Allen. For the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Gerald Chan and Olivia Eng. For the intervenant central des syndicats du Québec, Amy Nguyen, Marc Daou and Laurence Dufour Arsenault. For the intervener, Queen's Prison Law Clinic, Jared Will.
2: Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. The issue on this appeal is the proper approach to judicial review of a labor arbitrator's decision that balanced an employee's claim of privacy rights in the workplace against an employer's legitimate purposes in maintaining order and discipline in the workplace and addressing a toxic workplace that had been caused by these employees.
0: What is the source of the privacy rights?
2: As it was asserted um, at arbitration, the source of the privacy right was the common law of arbitration. The arbitral law has developed, Justice Rowe...
0: But how can the arbitral law be the source of a privacy right? The arbitral law is the adjudication of a dispute between parties as to the application of the collective agreement or the the application of relevant laws of, 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 of general application. It isn't the source of authority. It isn't the source of rights per se, unless I've completely misconceived the role of arbitrators. Well,
2: the the source of rights in the labor relations context can be either the collective agreement, uh, the agreement between the parties that sets the ground rules for the working relationship, and also the arbitral law, the common law of labor arbitration that's developed over the decades, interpreting those provisions, but this case was not argued or presented as a a, a a charter case and so if someone had suggested to arbitrator misra that she was determining a case that was argued on the base that the source of the privacy right was section eight of the charter she would have been frankly befuddled by that but, well, but is, not, is, not,
0: is, is it not a is it not a fundamental question whether the arbitrator answered what was completely the wrong question and, well, and in fact was it not incumbent upon the arbitrator to have regard to Section 8. I mean, this is this is absolutely foundational, it seems to me. I I have to respectfully disagree. The arbitrator
2: answered the question that was presented to her, and in doing so, she adopted part of the in, in part of her analysis to determine the employee side of the balancing. Every labor relations case is balancing the employee's interest against the employer's interest. And so in determining the meets and bounds of the employee's interests, she had recourse to this court's jurisprudence determining the reasonable expectation of privacy because why would she have started from a blank slate when there's such a rich vein of jurisprudence? But she answered the question that was before her. It would have been entirely inappropriate for her to embark on her own on an analysis of whether she should be answering a charter question because no charter question was put before her. And there are scores of labor arbitration cases that determine employee privacy rights for the multitude, the vast majority of workplaces to which no one asserts that the charter applies. And so it can't be that employees only have privacy rights and the privacy claims only make sense where the
0: charter applies. But is is the source of these privacy rights to which you refer the labor relations statute? Is it the human rights statute? Is it the common law, which is the province of the superior courts? Where from whence cometh this 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 right I mean this is a question that employer counsel have asked
2: themselves uh for decades but the the answer is that it comes from the relationship of the employer and employee it comes from the fact that employees have an interest and I can't believe that I'm arguing in favor of employee interest here but it comes from the fact that employees do have an interest in their workplace And it comes from the fact that the collective agreement rights and the labor arbitration cases that decide those rights have determined that employees do have some measure of privacy rights in the workplace. So it it can't be that absent uh, a charter application that this case doesn't make sense.
3: But it's not really just uh, employers, employees. The particular context here is whether or not section 265 of the Education Act authorized the school board and the principal to search one of the teacher's computers. So it is the school board context that we're dealing with, which is what the respondents say engages the charter under the first or the second branch of Eldridge. So it is, we do have to look at the particular context. I take your point that outside of the uh, particular context of schools or or, uh, another government emanation, uh, there may be different considerations, but here that context, and perhaps reframing the question as whether the search was authorized under 265 of the uh, Education Act may be a narrower but also more helpful way of framing the question because it takes us to the question of whether the charter is engaged.
2: And, And that's an excellent question, Justice Jamal. So let me approach that in two steps. The first question in terms of whether section 265 is engaged. Section 265 says that the principal has the duty to maintain proper order and discipline in the school and also to encourage effective cooperation among members of staff. And so this court has interpreted section 265, albeit in a different context uh, in both MMR and in Cole, and has found that by necessary implication, those broad and discretionary and flexible duties include a duty to search and seize in order to make those duties possible to carry out. And so the arbitrator was alive to that. And in actually a frankly very rich and nuanced analysis, she said, well look, MMR and Cole are criminal cases, so that's different. MMR involves a personal search as opposed to informational privacy, so that's different. But still the principles that they speak to about the school environment and about the necessary implication um, of a search and seizure right in order to, to make these duties real um, is still in her word pertinent and let me also add that there's nothing revolutionary about this concept because in Ontario for example and in other provinces all employers have a duty and obligation to maintain a safe workplace.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the real question is in which circumstances there is an expectancy of privacy from, from, from here the teachers and other situations from employers. That's the real issue.
2: And, 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 and that's exactly right. And so in, in my respectful submission, one of the key errors that the Court of Appeal made here is to apply a correctness standard. What the court said in Justice Huscroft's decision is that the question of, as he phrased it, as his honor phrased it, whether the grievors have a reasonable expectation of privacy is an issue of law and correctness applies. Now that's wrong on a couple of levels. First of all, he relied on Shepard which is an appellate decision, and we know that appellate standards and JR standards aren't the same. And in fact, in Vavilov, the existence of a statutory right of appeal is a a potential source of taking something out of the JR analysis. And so what's the appropriate JR analysis that the Court of Appeal should should have applied to the arbitrator's award? It starts from the presumption of reasonableness in Vavilov, and Vavilov, the genius of Vavilov, is that it says it's a comprehensive approach to determining standards of review with the presumption of reasonableness and then limited exceptions. And the only one that could apply here respectfully is constitutional questions. And in my respectful, in my respectful submission, it doesn't apply.
4: Yeah, but uh, uh, on the issue uh, to determine if the Charter does apply, to school boards, yes. Would you agree that it would be the correctness standard?
2: I would absolutely agree with but that.
4: But your point, that is, that the court of appeal erred uh, in saying that it is correctness also to the determination of the existence of the reasonable expectation of privacy.
2: Yes, and I mean the layers of this case is that the court of appeals' decision on charter applicability drives an appellate standard to this court. And of course, the charter applicability question is one that the arbitrator never answered because she was never asked it. Yes,
5: but let me, I understand your position that she actually wasn't deciding charter rights. Yes. She was deciding privacy rights in an employment context. How does the analysis differ? When I read her analysis, It, it's, I mean, it's subject excellent. to some yeah. concerns here or there about how it fits in, but it read like a charter analysis. Indeed. So how does the orbital law, as you say, on privacy differ from the analysis under Section 8 about privacy rights? And if there is no substantial difference, how can you say the issue was not before her?
2: Well, the... In terms of the way that the analysis differs, Section 8, of course, is fascinating because embedded in it is a reasonableness test. So embedded in Section 8, unlike other charter rights, is essentially the type of balancing and totality of circumstances analysis that arbitral law would employ. And in in terms of the question of how it's different, the test, the approach that the arbitrator applied, similar to the Bhattacharya arbitration decision that she relied on, was to look at the employee interest, the employer interest, and determine if there's a breach. Now, as she did it in the employee interest, it was the totality of circumstances to determine reasonable expectation of privacy, and in the employer interest, you look at as it author. She looked at whether it was authorized by law, and whether the search was carried out reasonably. So I agree, Justice Karrigansanos, in in the broad sweep of it as you look at that analysis it looks like a charter analysis and is frankly done very well
5: but that but it's not
2: a charter analysis because she wasn't asked and presented with this is a section eight right privacy perhaps is idiosyncratic
5: in that regard can I you say it's a new issue if in fact it's precisely the issue but under a different name I'm 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 not suggesting
2: it's a new issue necessarily at, at this point. I was just answering Justice Rose.
6: Can I yep. can I just go back to Justice Cote's question? So she's and your acknowledgement that the pure section 32 problem, application of the charter to a school board is the kind of uh question spoken to in paragraphs 55 to 57 of Vavilov, yes, exceptionally a constitutional question uh Attracting correctness as the standard of review. What was the appropriate thing for the Div Court or even by extension the Court of Appeal to do with that, what you described as the layer approach? Should they have addressed that first as a question of law, said that the arbitrator failed to to apply the Charter and then, what, send it back to do a proper, a proper analysis, reasonableness, analysis that would have been reasonableness had it been done correctly? Or, or, and what about the fact that the reprimand was now off the table and the damages claim was off the table? What, what, what should have happened in this case?
2: It's a very fair question. What should have happened is that this case should not have been allowed to morph into a referendum on the Charter in Section 8 in the midst of judicial reviews and appeals. And so my straightforward answer to that question is that the case was never argued as a charter case at arbitration. And so it should not, in my respectful submission, have been addressed as a charter section eight case by the Court of Appeal. Now having done so, Justice Huscroft and the Court of Appeal having determined the question of charter applicability, and, and, and we say they erred in so doing because they didn't conduct an Eldridge analysis, but having done so, we are left in the position of an appellate decision um, speaking to this issue, and so therefore we felt we had to address
6: it. Um, You'd agree that he couldn't send it, there was nothing to send back, right? He
0: shouldn't have sent it back because he shouldn't have addressed it at all. But it it seems to me it's inevitable. You can't create a charter-free zone. That's what Eldridge says. Wait for the question. You can't create a charter-free zone to say I'm turning my mind to this question, I'm ignoring the Constitution. It doesn't work. Any way, any form of standard of review which says I'm going to fail to have regard to the supreme law of the country in making this decision, and when the law is applicable, is going to be unreasonable, incorrect, and it's going to be struck down. You just can't create a charter-free zone. And the initial question Maybe this is really the point, the initial question is, what was it that the arbitrator was supposed to do? And the answer may be, the arbitrator did the wrong thing because the arbitrator answered the wrong question. It may have been the question she was asked, but if you answer the wrong question, you know, it's done, it's over. And it's the role of the reviewing court to say, guess what, you, you posed and answered the wrong question, Here is a matter of constitutional law is the question you should have asked yourself and here is the methodology you should have used in answering it.
2: So let me say a few things gingerly in response to that question. First of all, what you're describing Justice Rowe doesn't sound to me like judicial review because the difference between reasonableness and correctness is that reasonableness focuses on the decision actually made and you're looking for justification, intelligibility. In fact, in
4: Vavilov, we we said that the method to do reasonableness review is a reason-first approach. Right, exactly, whereas
2: correctness, and this Court of Appeal decision is exhibit A for how you do correctness, which is you focus on the conclusion the Court would have reached in the decision-maker's place. I mean, the Court of Appeal's review of the arbitrator's award reminds me of walking through a museum with my six-year-old. I mean, you catch a few things along the way, but at at the end of the day, you leave with a really mistaken impression of what's actually happened. And so to answer the question of what the arbitrator was supposed to do, she did precisely what she was supposed to do. And she didn't ignore the charter in the sense of ignoring the highest law of the land. She provided a rich, nuanced, and faithful interpretation or application of coal and of the totality of circumstances test. So she didn't ignore Um, it at all. She didn't create, or we're not advocating for a charter-free zone. When we submit that the charter didn't apply here, it doesn't mean that the charter can never in any circumstance apply to anything that a school board or a principal does. It means, first of all, back to your question, Justice Jamal, um, it's not a, um, uh, we submit it's not a category one Eldridge situation because we're not government either by their very nature or because of extensive government control. But once you get into category two in terms of whether you're carrying out government activity, we don't shy away from the fact that in some instances, in some aspects of what the school board does, much like hospitals for example, the difference between Stoffman and Eldridge is in Stoffman you're not category one, but in Eldridge when it comes to sign language interpreters that the court said was intimately connected to the delivery of medical services, your category two. So we're not advocating for a charter free zone. And in fact, the arbitrator's analysis, let's not forget she concluded, sometimes when I read my friend's factums and the various intervener factums, you can forget that the arbitrator concluded that these employees did have a reasonable expectation of privacy, although diminished, which triggered the next steps in the analysis. And so she didn't ignore the, the supreme law of the land, she applied it faithfully to her context. And based on her detailed findings of fact over the course of hearing from 10 witnesses over 11 days of hearing. And so in judicially reviewing that outcome, there is no way to say in any sensible, principled way that the question of whether these two people had a reasonable expectation of privacy is a constitutional question nor is there any way to say that it needed a charter analysis that the arbitrator suemoto should have brought to the table and so what we're left with is a judicial review of what is really an unexceptional type of decision in labor relations
4: so mr cesario is it your position that let's say the arbitrator would have assumed that charter uh, the charter does apply to a school board your school board uh, the analysis about the existence of a reasonable expectation of privacy would not have been different?
2: Practically speaking, that is correct, because she applied is... the totality of circumstances test. In, in essence, back to my response to Justice Kirikatsanis, in essence, she determined the reasonable expectation of privacy, and she determined whether the search was reasonable with regard to the authority under which the search was conducted and how the searches were conducted. She
4: would not have done something different had she decided at the beginning that the charter does apply. She would have conducted the same analysis because she applied the totality of circumstances test.
2: Practically speaking, that's true. And I, I, I say that in part to provide comfort that Ontario workplaces to which the charter does not apply are not Wild West uh, law-free or even privacy-free zones. Um, labor arbitrators are expert in this realm, and I appreciate that um, post-Vavilov, the genius of Vavilov is that it ties reasonableness to legislative intent and not to some subjective idea of expertise. But of course, expertise still does play in to how reasonableness is carried out, and labor arbitrators know how to do this, and frankly, they're doing it well.
4: And Mr. Cesario, a lot of people are talking about Dory here. Yes. I would like to know your views on that.
2: Um, I have several, um, but for purposes of this case, I would say, so keeping in mind what Doré did, and this is fascinating in the development of the common law, what Doré did was was essentially to resolve what had been a debate in this court. If you're dealing with a situation where there's a charter, charter issue dealt with at arbitration, do you apply an Oaks Section 1 type of analysis, as this court decided in Multani, or do you apply a judicial review analysis? And what Doré did was to essentially resolve that debate and to say, you apply a judicial review analysis, but don't worry, the judicial review analysis is still robust enough to protect but charter does, rights. does
0: not the Doré analysis in a sense, carry out the same function as that which is carried out under Section 1.
2: Uh, that, that because,
0: was... because you never get to the justification of the infringement until you've ascertained there's an infringement. And then, once you've got an infringement, you say, well, is this justified in the circumstances? And if you, if you, and if you look at Oakes, there's a formulation of that. And if you look at Doré, there's like a blur, I'd call it of balancing, which is somewhat unstructured, but you know, some folks like that. But, uh, uh, but it serves the same function. First there's an infringement, and then is it justified in the circumstances? Right. And so a function similar in character to Doré, whether it's got a big sign over it, Doré, would have to be carried out by an arbitrator were the arbitrator to conclude that there had been an infringement of a right of privacy. It seems to me. So that's a great question. So let me just, in talking about
2: Dore, what I think with, with respect is lost in the various flurry of factums that disc- talk about Dore. Dore is a framework for review of an administrative decision. So what Dore says is that when an administrative decision engages the charter by limiting charter protections, rights, or values. That decision is reviewed based on the Doré-Loyola framework to determine whether the decision reflects a proportionate balancing of the charter protections at play. So two things I would say here. First of all, Doré doesn't, on this case, apply because we're not reviewing the arbitrator's decision where the arbitrator's decision is what was alleged to have limited charter protection. So, Doré simply doesn't apply because it's a review framework and there's no sense, with all due respect, to Justice Sachs.
4: doesn't apply because what, uh, the, this is not the decision of the arbitrator, which is alleged to have limited the Charter Rights, but it is the principal conduct.
2: Precisely right. And, and so, with all due respect to Justice Sachs and the Divisional Court in dissent, it analytically does not make sense to say that the... Divisional Court on Judicial Review should have applied Dore because they weren't reviewing the arbitrator for having breached uh, Charter protections, uh, but also I will say in terms of the differences between correctness and reasonableness And what I hear a lot in a, in, in in some of my friends uh, Arguments is this idea that somehow this case involves both correctness and reasonableness in my respectful submission It does not um, and it 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 doesn't really make sense to say, well, it's correctness in terms of statement of the law, but reasonableness in the outcome. Because what Vavilov accounts for that by saying that the law is one of the constraints on on the reasonableness approach. And so while it is true that a decision like the arbitrator's, that relies on the totality of circumstances analysis, if I could use a word different than correct, if she inaccurately describes the law or states the law and then proceeds to apply an inaccurate test, it is hard to imagine how a decision of that sort could be reasonable. But that's different in an important way, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, than suggesting that there's a correctness step embedded in that analysis. But isn't
3: that what Justice Huscroft essentially said and what the um, respondents are saying? Because in their condensed book, they've uh, advanced a series of category errors in in the application of the totality of the circumstances and the uh, pr- principle of content neutrality, misunderstanding of what is biographical core, mm-hmm. misapplication of misunderstanding of the plain view doctrine, failure to address the griever's, the second griever's distinct privacy interest. Mm-hmm. Those are category errors that even if we were presumptively starting from a reasonableness framework, we kind of, uh, they, they take you outside that. And that's essentially, that's the way I read Justice Huscroft's decision, because he goes through several of those points, um, starting from a different place than you start, and where you say the the arbitrator started. But I think you get to the same place. So the notion that it could be correctness on a constitutional question, reasonableness on the ultimate determination, but correctness on the proper framework to apply in in reaching a reasonable determination seems to me to be perfectly uh, uh, intelligible. And just to complete, but
6: before you answer, just so, something that's, uh, to uh, Justice Huscroft, at 43 and 44 of his decision, explains the relevance of Dore. Yes. Saying that Dore is concerned with the balancing of charter values and rights with statutory mandates in the context of the exercise of discretionary power and not with how charter values or rights are to be recognized and, and interpreted. So just to complete the point that Justice Jamal makes. in. Yeah.
2: And in in answering your question, Justice Jamal, and thank you, Justice Kazira, at at the end of paragraph 44 of the Court of Appeal decision is a a couple of key errors are embedded there. First of all, Justice Huscroft says, given that the discipline was spent by the time of the arbitration, the arbitrator was required only to determine whether the griever's Section 8 charter rights were violated by the search. Incorrect, first of all, because it was not addressed as a Section 8 case, but leaving that aside. And, as noted above, whether the grievers had a reasonable expectation of privacy is a question of law that is subject to review for correctness. And so while I agree, Justice Jamal, that if um, an arbitrator is applying um, a legal test from this court like totality of circumstances, um, if it's somehow misapplied, it couldn't be it's hard to imagine it being a reasonable decision. I still have to resist the idea that there's correctness embedded in there because, it does not allow, in my respectful submission, this case does not allow a court to step in and make the decision for itself because the, the slight wrinkle on, on, on what you said, Justice, is that, for example, if an arbitrator had inaccurately stated the totality of circumstances test, left out the objective part at the end and just thought it was the first three, in my respectful submission, a court on review wouldn't then step in and say, you should have done four things, let me do it, you would say this is the accurate test that you should have applied and send it back to be applied. That's the difference, perhaps subtle, and it didn't happen here, because in my respectful submission, the arbitrator was very true to the law, and we'll get to that hopefully, but, Um, That is the subtle
5: difference between the reasonableness and correctness. But can I just ask you this, because it seems to me that part of the reason why there are so many different ways to approach the standard of review is precisely because of the way in which this case has morphed over time. Indeed. And so, if the arbitrator was looking at just cause and the reprimand and discipline and whether this evidence that resulted from a breach of privacy or not, could, was admissible and necessary for the finding, we'd be in a very different kind of decision that perhaps would be balancing charter rights against other things, but at, we, we instead have the, the 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 arbitrator saying, discipline is moot. On consent, yes. I've been asked simply whether charter rights were breached, and if they were, it's not charter, Privacy rights Thank were you. breached, and if they were, could they form the basis of discipline? Right. It's like a hypothetical almost in this case, uh, or some kind of declaratory. So I agree. It's on consent. Could, could a griever have brought that kind of a case in the absence of a reprimand to say, were my privacy rights breached? Yes. The, the, the
2: way that would be styled is that the um is that it if were if it were brought as a grievance, uh it would be styled as a breach of the collective agreement, a breach of the management rights clause, um uh, a search for which or a seizure for which there was no authority in the collective agreement. So it it, it would be argued in that way. But Justice Kara Kitsanis, you're absolutely right that among the many ways that this case is somewhat quirky um is that there wasn't the end piece in, in charter language, the kind of 24-2 analysis or the remedy analysis or the employment discipline analysis that would make this feel less chartery and more labor relationsy, if I can put it colloquially. But ultimately, the, the steps in the journey that the arbitrator was asked on consent to take aren't any less labor relations issues just because she
5: didn't have to go and take the last steps. But, but you're not asking us to not answer the charter question. I given think that, where we are today and I'd, given no. that teachers and school boards all would like the guidance. You accept that we need to answer, does the Charter apply? Yes. Does Section 32 uh, work here? Does it apply? And was there a breach in these circumstances? I
2: accept that the, the, the ship has sailed on, on the argument that we shouldn't be addressing the Charter issue, okay. and so I'm, I'm I, I mean, we'd have many disappointed so, people if, you're, if Justice says you didn't answer those questions. So maybe we need to focus on that. In, in, indeed. Um, so, and I, I addressed this um, briefly in answering, I think it was Justice Jamal's question. So on the charter applicability question, a, a, a few things. Sometimes in, in, in my respectful submission, when we read these Section 32 cases, we can get lost from what we're doing. So. The question in this case under section 321 b of the charter is whether the school board can be caught by the language of the charter applying to the legislature and government of each province. And so this court through Eldridge and other cases has determined that there's two categories by which you could be government if you're not the legislature. One is based on the nature of the actor and one is based on the nature of, of the activity. So on the nature of the actor, there's two sub-branches. One is whether the entity is government by its very nature, and the other addresses government control over the entity. So let's talk about government by its very nature. And so the leading case on that, I'd say, is Godbu, uh, uh, the municipal uh, case. And so what this court said in Godbu, which is at tab 13 of our condensed book, is the court addressed four factors. First of all, that municipal councillors are democratically elected, and the court said that was an important, though not determinative, factor. Obviously, that one works against me here because school trustees, school board trustees are are elected.
0: I I, I have to intervene to say that uh, in some provinces, these elections take place. In some provinces, there are taxes levied. In other provinces, taxes are not levied. In other provinces, effectively, school boards have been abolished and there's there's something which is called a school board, but they're actually an assistant deputy minister in the Department of Education. Now, the day before you had an elected school board, the day after you have what's essentially an assistant deputy minister in the Department of Education, the operation of the school boards changed not a whit. It is the nature of the function. This is a service delivery mechanism for government. How could it be any more clear than that? And, and, and so, Justice Rowe, I actually um, I, I
2: agree with that to the extent that in our analysis, the only way that this could be a charter case is under category two, which is the nature of the activity, not category one, the nature of the actor. And, and I'll come to that. In our respectful submission, again, there are some activities that the school board carries out that are directly implementing uh, government policy or program, which is the carrying out of education. In my respectful submission, the managing of the workplace, which is what this is, and which functionally what the principal did was no different than if he had been the general manager of a warehouse or the manager of a mine, of an iron ore mine. The principal was acting not in carrying out a government will or a government power. The principal was acting as any employer would do. Yes, pursuant to a duty in a statute, but non-charter non-government employers have duties to maintain safe workplaces as well and so there's nothing inherent in this activity that makes it either intimately connected in the words of eldridge to the delivery of education nor that makes it carrying out a specific government activity and so back to your point justice Rue, yeah there are certainly differences among the provinces in terms of the structure of school boards one of the problems of picking up a charter case midstream is that the case wasn't argued and developed. Uh, there wasn't a factual record um, along the way, but leaving that aside, we're left with the record we have in the Court of Appeals decision. And so back to the Godbu factors on government by nature. So democratically elected, Godbu said there's a general taxation power in municipalities indistinguishable from those of parliament and the provincial governments. We obviously don't have that benefiting from tax dollars we know from mckinney and other decisions is not enough to make you uh, government by your nature and then the important last two factors in godbu was that a municipality has law making authority which the court described as the ability to enact coercive laws binding on the public generally for which offenders may be punished we don't have that and then lastly and and this point is important i want to underline Because this point is misconstrued with all due respect in Justice Gontier's dissent in Chamberlain, which is repeatedly trotted out as um, a a, a paragraph that speaks to this issue. Because what the court said, what this court said in Godbu, is that the most significant factor is that municipalities derive their existence and lawmaking authority from the provinces. And I won't trouble you with it, but if you look at, the quote from Chamberlain that is often repeated, Justice Gontier put an ellipsis in to replace and lawmaking authority. So when Justice Gontier quoted from Godbu, he quoted um, this, what's most significant is that you derive your existence dot, dot, dot from the province. But what this court said in Godbu is not just that you're a creature of statute, because there are creatures of statute that are government, but that you have lawmaking authority and you have it because the province gave it to you, which fits perfectly with the policy of we don't want governments, the federal or provincial government, to insulate their government activity from the charter by subcontracting it out. And so in my respectful submission, that's not what's happening here because an employer managing a workplace isn't subcontracting out or having been subcontracted government activities. But isn't,
3: isn't, I mean, in, in Godbu, I mean, it's dangerous reading Godbu like a statute because even, Fair just enough. as Lafaray said, these are just indicia.
7: In,
2: um, indeed.
3: But the, the larger question sort of behind Godbu and the other Section 32 cases is that government shouldn't be able to um, subdelegate government functions to another entity and then say, aha, we're not uh, subject to the Charter. Right. So Stan before we get to the Godboo factors, if we look at this sort of at uh, a higher level, education is a government function. It's a constitutional responsibility of the provinces under the Constitution Act. Uh, mm-hmm. they create municipalities. The school boards is a, is an emanation of the province, effectively, created, and it is delegated the statutory function of providing or the constitutional function of providing education. So To take Justice Rowe's example, you could have deputy ministers serving as principals, or you can have, uh, and then there would be no question, these are governmental, uh, inherently governmental activities, and uh, the actor is governmental. um, Or you can delegate it to a school board, and then they are doing what otherwise would be done by the deputy minister. So before we get into the, I agree with you on the Godbu factors. You can stumble over one or the other and say, well, is an expropriation power, uh, right. taxation? Some have taxation, some don't. But it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a recipe at the end of the day. There, in this but the larger question is, you can't subdelegate and avoid the charter.
2: And I, I completely agree that you have to step back and, and in, in my respectful submission, uh, Justice. Um, uh, uh, Jamal is that your your question runs into Stoffman because in all the factors you've identified a school board is indistinguishable from a public hospital and so if Stoffman is correct that a school board that a public hospital is not an emanation of government in that sense i mean i'm in all the factors you've identified obviously the democratically elected is different and i accept that but if if we're stepping back from the god boo recipe and looking at it as as subdelegation, um, I, my respectful submission, that takes us again into category two because what we're talking about here, while part of the workplace, it can't be that everything a school board does is a subdelegation of government. School boards enter into contracts with suppliers, they enter into construction contracts, they enter into a variety of contracts where they act as private entities, essentially act as corporations more or less. And so in in my respectful submission, from a policy point of view, the best way, the most efficient and effective and consistent with principle way of of having the charter protect where we need it to protect with respect to school boards is to engage in in, an Eldridge Category 2 analysis and to have it apply where it should apply, where the school board is doing precisely what you suggest, Justice Jamal. And in, in my respectful submission, not everything a school board does can be caught... By your formulation, can, some can things can.
6: You, I'm stuck on your not reading Chamberlain as a statute. I'm sorry, I'm reading yeah. it as. You said that the three little dots were a pro, I, like. I totally lost you on that. So in yeah. 121 of in his descent. Yes, Justice Gontier, where he speaks of deriving their existence dot 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 from the provinces. That's what you're. you're yeah. and you and he's he's. He's eliminated something. He's
2: eliminated um, and lawmaking authority, and it it also sounds much better when you say it than when I say Chamberlain. But um, he's dot dot dotted and lawmaking authority. I've I've checked it several times. No, no, I I...
6: see it. I see it, and so and I I see what your but your point in so doing, he has there's some kind of sleight of hand there no
2: no no of course not that's a crucial part of the Godbu formulation is what Mm -hmm. I'm saying it's not just that a municipality derives its existence from statute because there are a number of entities that do that aren't government the point is if if you follow the recipe uh, it's not a recipe but if you follow the Godbu analysis it's you have lawmaking authority and most importantly you got that lawmaking authority from the province not just your existence and so in my respectful submission, it's those two things have to be read together, and, and, and that doesn't apply to the York Region District School Board. That was my point on Mrs.
4: that. Yes, I indeed would like, I would like to hear you on a very important question. You say the charter does not apply, and you said at the beginning of your submissions yep. that the arbitrator decided this case yep. based on the arbitral law. Yep. So... What is the status of arbitral law in terms of uh, privacy rights of employees in their workplace? Yes, and, and so because what... Because I understand that you're not saying that there are no privacy rights no. for employees in their workplace. No,
2: and, and, and in fact what the arbitrator did here in determining whether there was a reasonable expectation of privacy is, again, to apply the totality of circumstances test, and, and she did it very true to the way that test should be applied, similar to how the arbitrator in Bhattacharya did it. And there's been a lot of debate in the factums about biographical core and content neutrality. I think Justice Jamal mentioned it, whether there was some kind of mistake. But at at its heart, this is a case about the claim about informational privacy. And what you've got, what we've laid out in our outline and what we've laid out in our timeline is that this is a case where the grievers did not treat the subject matter of the search as private or personal. This court has said since plant that section eight in informational privacy cases protects a biographical core of personal information. And so that's why in Cole, this court that the arbitrator adopted says that the closer the subject matter of the search lies to the biographical core, the more it favors a reasonable expectation of privacy. So as this court said in paragraph 46 of Cole, and this is key to the arbitrator's analysis, the more personal and confidential the information, the more willing, reasonable, and informed Canadians will be to recognize the existence of a constitutionally protected privacy interest. And that's the way that the subject matter of the search and the reasonable expectation, the objective reasonable expectation are tied closely together. Because in this case, what you've got is an online log, which the grievers themselves say was set up at the suggestion of their union to document their concerns about their fellow employees and their principals. They weren't sure why, but in case they might need it to refresh their recollection later. So in my respectful submission, it's unhelpful to talk about content neutrality and we've got to look at this as an opaque sealed bag because you've got to determine, as the arbitrator did, what's the subject matter of the search. And the subject matter of the search is that log it can't be just a level of abstraction like it's an online document.
4: May we... The traitor made an error in determining the subject matter. Instead of uh, being the log, because she said that subject matter was the log, a uh, 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 personal conversation. Uh, if was... the subject matter would have been like a personal conversation. And and but it, the the thing about this case is that it,
2: it wasn't. A personal conversation contrasted to maraca for example which my friend wants to rely on maraca reads like a sonnet to the private nature of te- texting and what maraca says for example is that there is no more discrete form of correspondence than texting of the variety of words one could use to describe these grievers discrete is not one of them maraca also says that through texting you communicate details about yourself that you would never reveal to the world these grievers discussed the fact of the log, read from the log to fellow employees, and discussed the subject matter of the log with various employees, complained to the principal. The principal was dealing with an environment where because of all this stress and intimidation and people being asked to take sides, staff members had had to be away from work. And so, it's, Justice Cote, you're asking precisely the right question. This, is, this was in no sense A personal, um, it it wasn't a conversation, it it was a record of of thoughts, but nor was it personal or private.
1: But in which in which circumstances there would be some reasonable expectation of privacy then?
2: Well, well, this is what's interesting. She did find they did have a reasonable expectation of privacy, albeit diminished given the contextual factors. And, and, And so Justice Wagner, you're right, the debate would or should be more pitched if if arbitrator Misra had said, because of this constellation of facts, there was no expectation of privacy. Because often the cases my friends rely on are about these factors negating the reasonable expectation of privacy. All she found is that it was diminished, which still, in a Section 8 analysis, still triggers the next step and keeps you going down the chain. So she didn't find that these were negated. This is what's really great about this arbitral decision. It's, 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 it's very nuanced. So she doesn't, and she even tries to give them the benefit of the doubt in, in determining the biographical core. And she says, well, let me determine whether this is really part of their biographical core, what's in this log. And she says, well, it's got a certain judgmental quality, so maybe that sounds like you're expressing an opinion. Justice Huscroft, of course, took that expression of judgmental quality and said, well, they're entitled to be judgmental. But if you look at the arbitrator's award, what she's trying to do there is give them the benefit of the doubt and saying, this sounds like, in some ways, but, you're but,
6: expressing but a Justice But H- yes. Justice, Hus- sorry, uh, ju- Justice Huscroft, did, was more nuanced, in fairness to him, than, than you, you're suggesting. Parag- he said two things about the biographical core, of paragraph 54. He, he said that the arbitrator found the information in the griever's log was not close enough to the griever's biographical core to find their privacy right was breached. In so doing, the arbitrator erred by treating the biographical core as a prerequisite to the protection of the right. Never he never He said that. And then he went on to say, paragraph 70, in, in respect of the misunderstanding of the nature of the log in the Section 8 rights, and this echoes... Uh, the chief justice's comment a person's thoughts thoughts about others are no less personal to them than their thoughts about themselves these are in other words reasonable expectation of privacy being um, spoken to kind of exhaustively through this biographical core uh, idea and about their person's thoughts about themselves the emphasis there uh, was uh, something that Um, Justice Husqvarth took exception to. What what are your thoughts? Did he he get it wrong? I'll I'll add on
5: to that because I was also going to refer to another paragraph, paragraph 53, where he points out that you don't take the content as actually found as a way to determine the nature of the privacy interest. You look at the potential Right. to disclose personal information, and that is crystal clear in all of our privacy jurisprudence. And,
2: and, and so let me start there and go backwards, because this feeds into a conversation I was having um, uh, with Justice Jamal. So first of all, the content neutrality piece really is developed in the criminal law in order to say that the police can't come back and say you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in talking about illegal stuff. That's not a, 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 a permissible... Uh, argument and so I take that point but you still have to determine the subject matter of the search and the point I was trying to make earlier is that in this case there's no way you can meaningfully describe this log in terms of the subject matter of the search that doesn't take you into some description of what you were doing it doesn't mean you have to say we're not arguing for the inference you didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy because we don't like what you were saying or you were saying antisocial things. The point is that the subject matter of the search, as informed by the record that the arbitrator heard over 11 days, was notes about concerns in the workplace generated potentially to refresh someone's recollection to make an employment argument perhaps later isn't Uh,
5: that a private communication well they're 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 setting down their private views except lock except they weren't private because the record
2: is replete and we have put some of this in our outline and in the timeline the grievers discussed these private thoughts with several other people in the workplace and so they didn't treat it as private they, they didn't treat it as private or confidential, standing in stark contrast to Maraca, for example, where Mr. Maraca's text conversation with Mr. Winchester was found in a search of Winchester's phone. Well, it was
3: in the private Google Drive. I mean, it's a, at the, in the highest level of generality, this is a computer search. So one can get into the, descend into the characterization of the log, but it's a computer search. So the policy of the school board, as I understand, did not prohibit um, somebody using school computers for personal purposes, that is to say accessing your Google, uh, your personal Google drive. So had there been a, an absolute prohibition, it might have been a different matter. If Some policies perhaps would say you can't ever use this for anything personal, but they did allow, they were allowed to use this for personal purposes. So it becomes a computer search, which is, we know is extremely uh, sensitive given the vast amount of material they can hold, and even beyond that, it's a search of the effectively of the private google or something on the private google drive so i don't know it seems to me that uh uh, it does engage many of the normative considerations about what sort of society we should live in because that's the question in under section eight is uh, the fundamental normative question about what what how we should uh, be viewed by the state
2: and i totally agree with that very last bit Um, And and so let me unpack that a little bit. First of all, this was not a computer search because the, the, in, in, in the way that this court has used in previous cases, because the rationale in those cases is that a personal computer can hold a variety of things. And that's where the potential piece comes in. We know that if the subject matter of the search is a computer or even a text conversation, we know that those kinds of things can hold private information. But that's not what's happening here. It wasn't a computer search. Um, And I I have to say that also in response to the question of, well, if the policy had prohibited it. Again, I come back to the point that the arbitrator didn't find, and I'm not suggesting that she should have or you should, that there was no expectation of privacy. She simply diminished it, found that it was diminished based on the conduct. And coming back to the normative piece, I think, in my respectful submission, it's the right question to ask, and it's the question that Cole asked, and Cole took into account lack of exclusive access or control. Cole took into account of the operational realities of the workplace, and in my respectful submission, um, Canadians would be entirely comfortable with the idea that if you want to keep something private and confidential, don't talk to all your workers, your coworkers and your principal about it don't access it. Don't access it through a workplace computer to which you don't have exclusive access or control. But even with what are all you of that conflating constellation, with,
8: with your criticisms there, aren't you conflating privacy and secrecy?
6: Privacy in something that you share. The fact that you share something, you don't lose a privacy interest.
2: Well, but if in the context of informational privacy, the question is whether you want to control how and when you disseminate it. Okay, and, 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 and the question is also whether the um, uh, subject matter of the search is close to the biographical core of personal information. And so I suppose there is a difference between secrecy and privacy, but in my respectful submission, it was entirely open, um, Justice Martin, to the arbitrator to consider in the constellation of factors how, how private or how personal or how secret these um, grievers treated this information because if you're talking about the fact that as uh, justice huscroft said that uh, you know the employer had the principal had no legitimate interest in reading it or he was trying to mine their private thoughts for his employment relations purposes he wasn't just snooping around this was uh, these comments these this conduct had created an environment in the workplace that was causing people to miss work, that was impairing the workplace. And so it is unfair for, in my respectful submission, the Court of Appeal to say that the arbitrator erred in how she applied this court's jurisprudence, when in my respectful submission, the the arbitrator's application is precisely um, on point with what this court asked um, courts to do. Her reading of coal and her application of totality of circumstances and her consideration of all the factors to determine the extent of the reasonable expectation of privacy, I think she took all these questions into account and she didn't take a binary view of it. So in in effect, the arbitrator's award aired all these questions that we've been asking each other and in a reasonableness analysis, what more can you ask for? We don't need to control the answer,
8: we need to control the reasoning process and she, she did all of this. She did all of this. Uh, if we accept your your analysis and say that um, there was, generally speaking, uh, um, um, a consideration of the reasonable expectation of privacy, generally speaking, a consideration of whether it was diminished, generally speaking, a consideration if there was a proper search power done here and whether it existed in the Education Act and was done reasonably. Um, and, and so we're saying that it's all done in the shadows. What's wrong with doing the proper analysis that is completely tethered to explicit law if the charter applies? There would be nothing wrong with doing that if, if the
2: charter applies. And I'm not saying that she did it in some some opaque or shadowy way. She actually, um, I, I think in response to a question earlier from Justice Kara if. if she essentially ran the charter analysis more or less um, more on the more side than less, so there would be nothing wrong with doing it in a case where the charter applied, but it can't be it, 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 it can't be that we would have expected her uh, the arbitrator to say, "Well, you argued this as a labor arbitration case and And so what I 'm saying is, and again, Justice Cassseira, I say this without meeting any disrespect to the Court of appeal, but in essence if I leave you with one thought, is that her, her Section 8 analysis was better than the Court of Appeals, with all due respect, in the sense that she heard the facts, she
0: got the law right, and she applied the law But you've to... just told us she didn't do a Section 8 analysis. No, no but, it... but, but— But, pardon me, if I understand you, she did something which paralleled a Section 8 analysis yeah. in that body of jurisprudence that we will now recognize as a further order of law arbitral jurisprudence as opposed to constitutional law, as opposed to statute law, and as opposed to common law?
2: Yes, um, so here's, here's what I'll say to that. So and, and I, I see that I've got three minutes left. And so in in, in closing, I, I will say to answer that question, the case was argued in front of her as a grievance. The case was argued in terms of a breach of of privacy, employment privacy rights that led to discipline. In the course of answering the question, Justice Rowe, I think she could the arbitrator could have been faulted by not having recourse to this court's charter analysis because if she was being asked to determine whether there was a privacy breach in the workplace, what better place, as this court said in JJ, to look for an answer to the question of how do I figure out if there is a privacy right and the extent of it, what better way, place to look than this court's jurisprudence. And so when I say for you know, rhetorical effect that she did a better section eight analysis than the court of appeal, I don't think that runs into my argument that she didn't, wasn't asked to apply the charter, but in essence, she, she ran through the steps. And when I say in essence, I don't mean to diminish what she did. She ran the test, she determined the answer based on her application of the facts and while it is entirely appropriate on judicial review to look at how she dealt with the legal constraints, um, that constraint, the, the legal principles that constrained her reasoning, I think ultimately what we have to do is pay respectful attention, as this court said in Vavilov, to her reasoning process and look at the reasoning process and the outcome. And not just jump to how we would have all decided the case if the case was argued in front of us and in my respectful submission ultimately at its core that's the mistake that the court of appeal made and that's why we ask for the appeal to be granted and for the arbitrator's decision to be restored
1: all right thank you very much B. J. ray
7: chief justice justices My submissions today will address only the standard of review issue. We will continue to rely on our written submissions with respect to Section 8. I'd like to address today why reasonableness is the appropriate standard of review for administrative decisions involving charter protections, and I'll offer three reasons for that. First of all, reasonableness review fosters a culture of justification. Secondly, reasonableness upholds the rule of law and respects legislative intent. And third, reasonableness review continues along the new path charted by Vavilov. So turning first to reasonableness review fosters a culture of justification. We say that that in turn is what helps ensure that charter protections are seriously considered and seriously addressed by administrative decision makers. The respondent and some of the interveners in this case are calling for correctness review because they're concerned that the reasonableness standard will result in a less rigorous protection of charter rights. In their view, they say the courts need to step in to ensure the charter's applied consistently and fairly. And we say that those submissions are underestimating the work that reasonableness review does in terms of enhancing the responsiveness of administrative decision makers to allegations of charter limitations. The courts recognized in Vavilov in the context of statutory interpretation that an administrative decision maker can actually enrich and elevate the interpretive exercise. And in our view, similarly, an administrative decision maker may enrich the charter analysis because they're often the best positioned to understand the context in which the allegations are being made. Decision makers have been put on notice by this court, most recently in the Mason case, that reasonableness review does not function as a rubber stamp. It's a robust form of review and a failure to grapple with key submissions or with key legal constraints is a failure of justification. When it comes to admin decisions dealing with the charter, that means the onus is on the decision maker to demonstrate that they are alive to the essential elements of the charter right at
6: issue. Council, can, can, can I ask you, sorry to interrupt you, Council, but can I ask you, if we were to look at the, ex, the way in which Vavilov explains the exceptional regime for constitutional questions, where does this? Where does your argument on, on section eight, um, direct us to that we are outside of of that paradigm for paragraphs 55, 56, and 57? Is it that we, we're dealing here with a, an other constitutional matter, but that doesn't require a final and determinate answer from the courts because of the fact-based. Is is that it? Where where are we at here?
7: That's precisely it. Um, We we say this does not fall into the constitutional questions exemption exactly for that reason. It does not require a final and determinative answer because what we're dealing with here is the application of the charter within a particular, particular factual scenario the findings of fact that the decision maker needs to make are very particular to this scenario, and they need to apply those to the relevant charter jurisprudence. And I think Vavilov has given very strong guidance that a failure to consider a relevant charter principle is going to be a failure of justification. So in our view, this doesn't fall within the constitutional question exemption, and it doesn't fall within the exemption of um, a, question, a general legal question of, of general application. But, but like
6: qualitatively that. different than than the threshold section 32 issue as to whether the charter applies at all.
7: We agree with that. Um, in our view, that is a proper constitutional question because it is, Um, uh, uh, well, I I think it's probably better characterized as a question of general legal application, um, that it does indeed require a final and definitive answer, unlike the situation um, that was before the arbitrator in this case. I'll move quickly to my second point, which is just that the purpose of reasonableness review is to uphold the rule of law while respecting legislative intent This court's already rejected the proposition that courts ought to have a monopoly on determining whether charter protections are engaged um, and and that um, we say ought to continue going forward. I realize Chief Justice, I I am out of time.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, Daniel Afeker.
9: Good morning Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General of Ontario is intervening in this appeal to submit that the stringent standard of reasonableness that applies to searches in the criminal context should not apply to searches conducted by government actors for workplace purposes. Our central point is that the same reasons that have compelled this court to apply that sort of flexible standard of reasonableness to searches in the regulatory context, those same reasons also apply to the employment context. Uh, Our submissions are directed solely at the Section 8 analysis. We take no position on the standard of review, uh, the Doré-Loyola question, or the application of the charter to the Appellant School Board. This court has consistently characterized the analysis under Section 8 as a balancing exercise between, on the one hand, the individual interest in privacy or, or interest in being left alone, and on the other hand, or on the other side of the scale, in the state interest, And usually in the cases in the criminal law context, that state interest is the interest in law enforcement. But this court's jurisprudence demonstrates that the Section 8 analysis is flexible enough and purposive enough to weigh other state interests on the the other side of that scale and in other contexts. It's well established in this court's jurisprudence that where a reasonable balance is struck and and when that balance must be assessed depend on the context. And another way of saying the same point is that, um, what is the point at which the individual interest in privacy must give way to to the state interest is another way of saying that same point. In the criminal context, that individual interest weighs very heavily because the state is seeking to impose or determine criminal liability and the potential consequences of a criminal conviction are so severe for the individual. But in the regulatory context, that balance is different. On the one hand, on the individual side of the scale, there's a diminished expectation of privacy and in information produced for the purpose of compliance with the regu- regulatory regime. And the potential consequences of a search or inspection in the, re- in the regulatory context are not so severe. And on the other side of the scale, there's an important public interest in ensuring compliance with public with, with regulatory regimes that are enacted in the public good. So that's why, for example, uh, Justice Laforet and Thompson newspapers said that the standard of reasonableness which prevails in the case of a search or seizure made in the course of enforcement of the criminal law will not usually be appropriate to a determination of reasonableness in the administrative or regulatory context. That's at page 506 of Thompson Newspapers, but it's also in effectum. Ontario submits that the same reasons that compel a more flexible standard in the regulatory context also apply to searches conducted for workplace purposes. So first, like the regulatory context, employment's a heavily regulated area into which employees enter more or less freely and chiefly for economic reasons. In the regulatory context, this court has held that being subject to regulation as a matter of course reduces or can reduce a reasonable expectation of privacy. So people who enter into regulated activities make the choice to enter into an area of regulated activity or presume to know the rules of the game and and be subject to those rules. And in the employment context, this court has already noted in Cole that the operational realities of workplace, including uh, workplace policies or operations, can influence what is a reasonable expectation of privacy. Of privacy. And Ontario submits that in some circumstances there may be no reasonable expectation of privacy at all. And a, a demonstration or an example of that possibility is uh, the search, the uh, search of the employer's network in coal, the computer network. And second, again, as in the regulatory context, the potential consequences of a search in the employment context do not compare to a criminal conviction. Uh, The bottom line is that an employer cannot deprive an employee of his or her liberty. The most serious consequence that an employer can impose on an employee is to sever the economic relationship between them. And third, and finally, and most importantly, I would say, just as there is an important public interest in ensuring compliance with regulatory regimes, there is an important public interest in allowing public sector employers in particular to manage the workplace. Cole and MMR discussed the importance of schools as places of learning and therefore the importance of the ability of teachers and administrators to ensure that there's a safe and orderly environment. But other public sector employees also deliver important public services using public funds, and in some cases, exercise authority over vulnerable people by virtue of their employment. That makes it critical for public sector employers to have the ability to supervise their employees. And it means that public sector employers management of the workplace serves not just an economic goal but also helps to ensure public confidence in public services
10: thank you
1: thank you very much mister jean vincent lacroix
10: monsieur juge en chef mesdames et messieurs les juges bonjour en 2023 il est indéniable qu'il existe une attente raisonnable de vie privée au travail pour les employés mais est aussi indéniable que Dans les outils informatiques fournis par les employeurs, des informations personnelles vont s'y retrouver. Il est aussi indéniable que les employés vont utiliser ces outils pour échanger des informations personnelles entre eux ou même à l'extérieur du cadre du travail. C'est la réalité du monde de travail aujourd'hui. Nous ne reviendrons pas sur les étapes du test de l'article 8, mais simplement rappeler que tout est une question de contexte. Et ici, le contexte est le contexte particulier de l'emploi. Donc, le contexte, une relation employeur-employé où chaque partie a des droits, obligations et responsabilités particulières.
11: Maître Lacroix, là, je, je veux vous. Oui. Pour pouvoir saisir dans peu de minutes le sens de votre message, mon oui. souci, c'est de comprendre est-ce qu'il y a ici dans votre mémoire et dans votre prestation ce matin une mise en garde pour l'État employeur Votre souci, c'est pour l'État employeur. Vous en parlez beaucoup dans votre mémoire. Ou est-ce que c'est plus largement compte tenu de la protection de la, de, la, de la vie privée au Code civil et à la Charte québécoise pour toute relation euh, employeur-employé, au-delà ou salarié, au-delà de l'État employeur? C'est quoi le, votre message ce matin? Je, 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 j'avais du mal à le saisir en vous lisant.
10: Merci, Monsieur le juge Cazarin. Euh, évidemment, euh, comme l'article 8 euh, ne s'applique que lorsque l'état euh, intervient. Euh, c'est sûr que euh, une p- grosse partie du message de ce matin euh, porte sur euh, les responsabilités de l'état employeur. Et comme euh, mon collègue de l'Ontario a plaidé euh, il y a quelques instants, euh, cet état employeur a des responsabilités particulières euh, pour ce qui est notamment de la prestation régulière des euh, services publics ou encore euh, la protection Euh, et l'utilisation correcte des myriades de données personnelles qui sont confiées à l'État. La particularité euh, au Québec, c'est que, comme vous le savez, nous avons la Charte québécoise et que euh, la vie privée est protégée tant à l'article 5 qu'à l'article 24.1 de la dite charte. Et la Cour d'appel dans Spriva a rappelé que l'article 5 de la Charte québécoise protégeait essentiellement la même substance de vie privée que sous l'article 8. Alors, oui, notre intervention est premièrement euh, relativement aux obligations et responsabilités de l'État employeur, mais euh, en raison du du panorama juridique applicable au Québec, on ne peut pas euh, nier que euh, les enseignements de la Cour sur les paramètres à appliquer euh, dans une telle situation Euh, auront des répercussions euh, dans l'application euh, des articles qui se trouvent à la Charte québécoise. Donc, oui, euh, éventuellement, Mais... ça pourrait s'appliquer aux employeurs privés. Et donc, euh, les grands paramètres euh, sur lesquels euh, nous voulons vous entretenir ce matin s'appliquent à l'être employeur et aussi euh, à un employeur privé. Maintenant, on
1: ne peut, peut, peut pas déduire de vos propos, euh, M. Lacroix, que, en aucune circonstance, Un employeur euh, ne pourrait pas effectivement aller saisir des informations sur un ordinateur euh, impliquant deux euh, des employés euh, si l'ordinateur appartient par exemple à, à l'employeur.
10: Ben, en fait, j'ajoute tout est une question de contexte. Euh, donc, euh, dans la mesure où euh, il y a une fouille d'un ordinateur, effectivement. Le fait que l'ordinateur appartient à un employeur ou que ce soit un ordinateur appartenant à l'employeur, mais avec une autorisation d'utilisation à des fins personnelles, ce sont tous des paramètres qui vont être utiles pour déterminer euh, l'expectative raisonnable de vie privée et aussi la raisonnabilité de la fouille qui va avoir été effectuée. Donc, notre propos, euh, effectivement, c'est pas de nier ça du tout, là, au contraire. Un peu plus de temps. Allez-y. Merci. Euh, Donc, très rapidement, euh, les deux propositions que nous voulions vous faire euh, ce matin, euh, c'est premièrement euh, reconnaître le pouvoir implicite à à l'État employeur. Donc, euh, il nous semble raisonnable de reconnaître que le pouvoir de de, de procéder à une fouille perquisition saisie découle du pouvoir de contrôle et de direction d'un employeur qu'on retrouve à 2085 du Code civil du Québec. Au Québec, il est donc généralement reconnu et accepté que ce pouvoir permet implicitement à un employeur d'accéder aux outils informatiques de son organisation, ce qui est une réalité à laquelle on ne peut pas échapper en 2023. Euh, un employeur doit donc pouvoir réagir avec célérité et efficacité en réponse à des situations qui sont problématiques ou qui pour, potentiellement pourraient le devenir. Et la deuxième proposition que nous voulions vous faire, très rapidement, euh, c'est quel est le seuil applicable dans un tel contexte? De façon générale, nous vous soumettons que euh, le seuil des motifs raisonnables de soupçonner pourrait être un critère raisonnable lorsqu'il est est question du contexte de l'emploi, un contexte de relation de travail. C'est un critère qui s'accorde bien avec la réalité d'un contexte réglementé, alors que l'attente raisonnable de vie privée, si elle existe, est notamment diminuée. Ce n'est pas un critère arbitraire, c'est un critère qui doit être fondé sur des faits objectivement discernables Et qui concorde avec l'exigence de motifs raisonnables et sérieux développés dans la jurisprudence québécoise. Au final, peu importe le seuil qui serait reconnu comme étant raisonnable, il faut toujours qu'il soit fondé sur des éléments objectivables. Il faut donc rejeter l'arbitraire. Et dernier point très rapidement, si vous me permettez, une fouille perquisition saisie devra pour toujours, pardon, Une fouille perquisition saisie doit toujours être appropriée eu égard aux circonstances, proportionnelle au manquement reproché tout en étant exécuté à l'aide de moyens adéquats et non excessifs.
1: Merci, M. Lacroix.
10: Merci. Merci.
1: Caroline Zahid. Good
12: morning. In MR, this court concluded that students have a significantly diminished expectation of privacy at school. And based on the same considerations considered by the court there, we submit that this court should reach the same conclusions in relation to teachers. In that case, Justice Corey emphasized the essential duty of schools to ensure the safety of students and to provide them with an orderly environment necessary to ensure learning. And that fundamental duty and context must inform the reasonable expectation of privacy of both students and teachers. One point we wish to emphasize is that when thinking about the totality of circumstances that are relevant, we must recognize that sometimes, unfortunately, threats to students and the learning environment can come from teachers as well as from students. We respectfully submit that the Court of Appeal lost sight of this in its reasons it conceptualized the diminished expectation of privacy available to students as having little or no relevance for teachers. And we submit that that is in error. Our factum uh, refers to many cases where it was the conduct of teachers which negatively impacted student safety or the learning environment. And although this is obviously a small minority of all the teachers, it is still necessary for schools to be able to address and regulate that context and it provides an important uh, consideration in assessing the right to privacy. So how does all this affect the reasonable expectation of privacy? In the school context, we submit that concepts such as private communications or content neutrality must be thought about in the context of the professional relationships and professional responsibilities of teachers in that environment. And this is quite different than the considerations that might apply to state intrusions on private citizens or even that might apply in other workplaces. It's our position that when it comes to communications relevant to students and the educational environment, a teacher's expectation of privacy is significantly diminished. For example, when a teacher communicates with a student, they must recognize that they have little or no reasonable expectation of privacy in that communication because of the nature of the relationship. And this, uh, we submit, this is, is despite the fact that we know that in many of the circumstances where communications between teachers and students form part of an inappropriate or abusive relationship, They often do contain highly personal information about both the teacher and the student. They will often contain information about the family, personal vulnerabilities, sexual interests. All of these things, of course, would normally be considered highly private, essential to biographical core. But we sus- and there would be a strong subjective interest in keeping them private, but we submit that because of the nature of the professional relationships and the education context, that must take precedence, and therefore the expectation of privacy should be significantly diminished. I would add that this does not negate the concerns raised by my friends from EGAL and others that certain kinds of communications may well be intensely private for the student involved. And the student may be entitled to have a reasonable expectation of privacy vis-a-vis other students or vis-a-vis others outside the school. But we submit that that does not mean that the teacher has a reasonable expectation of privacy, at least vis-a-vis school officials and the school. The... um, We recognize that communications between colleagues, which is what we were dealing with in this case, may not lead to the same uh, striking diminution of uh, expectation of privacy, but we would emphasize that in some cases, those communications between teachers can be very relevant to the workplace environment and must also be subject to a diminished expectation of privacy. So, so I leave you where I began, which is that this is not only a workplace, this is first and foremost a learning environment. That is part of the totality of circumstances that would apply in any case involving a teacher. And we submit that is why the, the reasonable expectation of privacy for teachers, even with respect to electronic communications, should be significantly diminished.
1: Thank you very much, um, George Avram.
13: Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. I've provided the court with a very brief condensed book, which has the outline of our argument and two additional tabs. And the focus of my submissions is on the framework an arbitrator and the reviewing court should take when the charter applies in a workplace. And in my submission, the first thing that needs to happen is an understanding and, and hopefully guidance from this court that where a dispute in a workplace can re- be resolved short of invoking the charter, that should be the preferred approach. So this isn't uh, to Justice Rowe's uh, comments earlier, uh, any, any suggestion that this is a charter-free zone. What we submit is that here the Court of Appeal should have done a Vavilov analysis, looking at the category areas that Justice Jamal raised uh, earlier with Mr. Cesario, conduct a reasonable analysis, determine if the arbitrator's decision is reasonable or not, and if that wasn't reasonable, or if then the end of, uh, there's the end of the story, but if it was reasonable, there's nothing short uh, stopping the Court of Appeal then from dealing with the Section 8 Charter Analysis that could apply a correctness standard. So I think the framework when you're dealing with a workplace is important because you'll recall that the fundamental purpose of collective bargaining and having arbitrations is to try and deal with these disputes expeditiously. And when the first order of business is trying to deal with it under the charter, that undermines the uh, overarching objective of the labor relations framework. And I say this, and if you go to tab two, of our condensed book, this is entirely consistent with what this court has said. If you look at paragraph six, and it's um, uh, uh, the court's decision in Phillips, it says the court has said on numerous occasions that it should not decide issues of law that are not necessary to a resolution of an appeal. I would say that is precisely the same standard that should apply to an arbitrator to a reviewing court and then to a court of appeal that in this case has to step into the shoes of the divisional court when reviewing that decision.
0: But but is it not necessary in terms of conducting a proper, I suppose you can call it reasonable, uh, uh, review of, of what the arbitrator has done, a reasonable review to say, has the arbitrator had regard to the relevant body of law and the relevant rules that relate to that body of law and if the arbitrator has failed to do so is that not something that the, the reviewing court should should look at
13: oh I, i'm not disagreeing with that justice Rowe. what i am saying is you first start out with that body of law and there's a there's a wealth of arbitral case law under the management right clause uh, of various collective agreements, that certainly incorporates the totality of circumstances R v Cole, but is not exhaustive. You'll see from uh, an intervener, uh, the Power Workers Union, um, that's that provides case law where the privacy case law is actually more robust, arguably than Section 8 of the Charter. So I think you have to look start with the law that's before you before the arbitrator determine whether that's reasonable or not. Yeah, but if, if let's say it's a government department. Let's make it real easy.
0: Yep. you got a government department. There's no question it, whether it comes under 32. Uh, and, and so the, the, the arbitrator says, I will have regard to arbitral jurisprudence relating to management rights. I will not have regard to uh, Section 8, even though the Charter applies. I mean, that... That sounds odd to me. Maybe it makes
13: perfect sense
0: from your point of view.
13: No, my submission is you start with the arbitral case law, and if that can't resolve the issue, then you go into Section 8 of the Charter. If I take a different area of law, if there's a discrimination claim, in my submission, the arbitrator should start with the collective agreement and the human rights legislation and not go straight to Section 15 of the Charter.
3: Isn't that sort of counter to all the jurisprudence from the court about the devolution of the charter to to administrative agencies that they can declare uh, or make findings of unconstitutionality, they can't make declarations, of course, Uh, and the sentiment expressed by Chief Justice McLaughlin that the charter isn't some holy grail that only superior courts can touch. It sort of runs completely inconsistent with everything in the law for the last 30 years, and to have this zone where the Charter is not gonna be applied in the interest of expedition, and we're still gonna get a 300-paragraph arbitral decision over multiple days. So I'm not sure there's not gonna be much saving in terms of time.
13: I'm not suggesting it's a charter-free zone, uh, Justice Jamal. I'm I'm, I'm suggesting that there should be a framework to start. I mean, clearly, when you go back to to Weber, um, and this court has said that uh, arbitrators are empowered to interpret and apply the charter. What I'm saying is the first part of that should not be the analysis that you go to the Charter because, as this Court said in Phillips, if you can resolve the issue short of dealing with a constitutional issue, that's what should happen.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Please be Thank you, Mr. Goldblatt.
14: Thank you, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. I want to be of as much assistance as I can to the court, and so uh, I intend to go in a particular direction, but I am certainly more than prepared to go in whatever direction the court or any of the justices seek to take me. What I want to do is just begin by outlining that the critical issue to that is now before this court, is the protection that workers should be provided in the workplace against unjustified and unwarranted intrusions into their private lives, their thoughts, and their communications. They are no less entitled to privacy protection in respect of their employers than suspected criminals are entitled to privacy protection from the police and the state. And while this court has developed a very robust case law with respect to the application of Section 8 in the criminal concept, Construct. It is not really done so with respect to the employment construct. And let me begin by saying that the answer to the question is how far do we go with respect to privacy uh, in the workplace is that there are no answers to that question. There is no bright line that needs to be set in respect to that question, that the Charter Section 8 itself, by using the words, Right to be secure against unreasonable search or seizure very much makes this a contextual analysis that needs to be addressed in the specifics of each case as they may arise, but within the framework, in this particular case, of the Charter, which we say applies to school boards. And what but does has- it
8: matter if the framework derives from the collective agreement or the Constitution or the Charter?
14: I'm sorry i, I didn't get it.
8: you're saying that it's a contextual determination and i'm asking whether it matters whether that context is provided by the collective agreement and arbitral law or whether it is provided by the charter
14: in terms of the issue before the court in terms of the analysis of section 8 the contextual analysis is provided by the charter it is the it is the analysis for example that this court has undertaken identified in mnmr the difference between a student having a gun or a student having gum to so be you specific. will not
1: I'm sorry to interrupt
14: you will not um, look at the jurisprudence in employment
1: law and which circumstances an employer can have access to uh, information computers for instance
14: well i mean the, the whole aspect of the matter has to be viewed within the factual context as it's as it's developed i mean Yes, it is a employer computer and in terms of determining whether there is a reasonable expectation of privacy, one has to analyze what is the access point with respect to the privacy. So for example, in the case at Bar, while there was a computer provided by the employer, the employer conceded in the course of the evidence that there was no prohibition against individuals keeping notes and whatever else, on that computer, and for example, in the Cole case, it was the computer for the exclusive use of of the teacher, and not, as in this case, being made available to the students. But the fact of the matter is, is that whose computer is it is not determinative. What is determinative, or at least what has to be taken into account, is what use is being made of the computer, and as we look at the reasonable expectation of privacy, what is the subject matter of the search and getting into the four tests and if, if I may just say this, if one determines that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, that's only the first consideration. And the second consideration is to what extent is there to be a search permitted using a Collins approach.
4: Mr. Goldblatt, what should we uh, do with the fact that when this, because it started with grievance? Sure. It was uh, presented uh, in the question in that three events is, is, uh, whether the board uh, violated the collective agreement. Yes. And the right to privacy.
14: Right. There and then. There was no
4: uh, argument presented before the arbitrator uh, regarding charter.
14: Well, you know, if someone had actually, my, my, my friend suggested to the court that the arbitrator would have been befuddled. Was the word he used if in fact the issue of the charter had been raised before her and i would say in fact the entire approach of the arbitrator to the consideration of the issue was say quote unquote charter based or based on charter principles her analysis does not say let's look at the common law Her analysis is not like in a a Norman situation, which this court says, well, the common law can be modified by the arbitrator. Her analysis, her approach, was consistent with charter principles. Looked at all of the elements of the charter. The only thing that was not specifically said, because I say respectfully until we come here, which is the issue I'm gonna have to address, question of the application of the charter to the school boards, it would have been accepted, it would have been obvious that the charter applies to the school board. And so everything the arbitrator did, every, uh, all of her analysis, and unfortunately the errors that we say she made, which have been identified, are based upon the principal approach of the charter, either specifically or the charter principles. And there, in terms of a government actor, which we say the school boards are. It cannot be that only part of the charter applies or only part of its application would be uh, demonstrable in this particular case. The charter has to apply and has to apply properly, correctly. You're not denying
3: that uh, when you talk about uh, teachers having no less protection than criminal defendants in Uh, the criminal process. You're not denying that this is actually a learning environment as well, not just a workplace, but a learning environment, that there's no warrant requirements uh, needed Mm. in this context. But those considerations do seem to me to be quite relevant for examining the totality of the circumstance and what would be justified by way of an intrusion on privacy. The fact that the principal has an important duty to manage the school and manage the learning environment. So it is a workplace. Uh, whose computer it is does seem to me to be relevant if there are policies regarding the use of the computer and whether they can be searched uh, as a matter of policy generally. Um, So all those things do seem to me to be quite relevant. Um, And so the analogy to the criminal cases only goes so far. Um, It it goes so far as
14: to say uh, that there is a relaxed standard, if I can put it that way, with respect to the analysis. It, for example, I, I, well, I, that's, I mean, I actually began by suggesting it is contextual. And for example, um, we, I'm not saying that you need a warrant in order to do the search. What we're, what we're, and, and by the way, if, if the search is one that is undertaken because there is a reasonable ground to believe that an issue will be or a concern will be discovered by the search, then that's one thing. But even then, one has to balance that reasonable basis to to determine that there will be a concern revealed and resolved, if I can put it that way, by the search, on the one hand, with the interests of the individuals, on the other hand, in maintaining the privacy of the the, uh, communications that they engaged in.
5: So and your, di- sorry. sorry. Finish your sentence, please. No,
14: and the extent to which the uh, issue, the concern, is more uh, substantive, such as a reasonable basis to believe that there are pornographic images or other uh, illicit, significantly illicit activity that could be revealed, on the one hand, then the lower the individual balance weighs in favor of the individual employee. So. In this particular case, if I may, Justice kerrigan Sanders just finish. In this particular case, the principal didn't even know what he might find on the log. And so the balance, once, once there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, not knowing what might even be there, raises the interests of the employees in ensuring that their private communications are protected to a much higher level than would be the case if he knew that there would be uh, evidence of gun smuggling or trafficking or something of that nature that would be revealed by the law, which comes back to the question of you need to have a reasonable basis to make that assumption.
5: So what you've described is a balancing between the the privacy interest and the state interest. And I'm just wondering, in the context, and I'm just wondering whether the the idea of a relaxed standard is actually really captures it. You're just balancing different things. And in some cases, the state uh, interest is, uh, will weigh heavier and in other cases. So I'm just wondering how useful it is to think about this as relaxed weighing rather than as it's contextual because you're weighing you know, the nature of the privacy interest on the one hand and the state interest in the other in the particular context yeah. of both
14: you know i'm not i mean the, the difficulty that i have uh, justice kirkisannis is to is to ever say that we are to be relaxed with respect to the application of the charter i think that um, when one relaxes uh, there is a the risk that uh, that we become relaxed into uh, indifference. And that's certainly not what I don't, I, I, I realize that's not what you're suggesting. But I, I do say that it's obvious that in the workplace, and, in, and in, indeed in, a, in the educational sector where, you know, it is a learning environment, um, it is obvious that there are different considerations at play when you're dealing with students, when you're dealing with teachers, when you're dealing with parents, when you're dealing with administrators, then are at play in the criminal context. And therefore, you know, for example, the warrant is not necessary. The basis upon which one undertakes a search is, to use your word, Justice, relaxed.
5: It's not my word, actually. What I was getting at is, uh... Why use the word relaxed precisely for the reason you yes, said? It enough. really is a contextual way yes, of the interests. And my question is, why should we use the word relaxed?
14: Well, I, I don't know if the word would be relaxed. I think perhaps if there might be a word, it might be reduced. It might be... It, but I I don't think... But I think that the real appropriate word is exactly the word we're using, contextual. Contextual. I think that that is the, that is the key word. As I said at the outset, you know, there are no bright lines. And so each case, because the very nature of Section 8 requires that it, there be a reasonable analysis, that that reasonable analysis is to be done within a contextual framework. And the then context-
1: you come closer to the common law than to an exercise of interpretation according to the Charter.
14: Well, I, I don't. I don't think. You, well, the common law um, and and the charter uh, can can exist side by side. But to the extent that there is any uh, difference between what the charter requires when there's a governmental actor involved and what the common law might require, and I'll say something about that in a minute. Um, obviously, the charter prevails. And uh, since this this court's. Um, Determination in uh, Hill and Church of Scientology, and the intention is to try and keep the common law consistent with the application of the Charter and, and Charter principles.
0: Yeah, under under the common law, one of the things that is recognized in the labor relations context is management rights. Mm-hmm. And 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 you say if 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 the if the employer says, well, I'm just exercising my management rights, and 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 but. If under the Charter analysis the exercise of management rights results in an infringement of a protected right, then I think following what you're saying, management rights must fall away. They must give way to the higher uh, legal regime.
14: Well, Your Honor, I've kind of spent my career trying to minimize management rights wherever I possibly can. Um, and um, there are so many restraints. I mean, just saying the word management rights doesn't, doesn't really address it. I mean, management rights can only be exercised in a manner consistent with a collective agreement, it cannot be exercised in a manner that's arbitrary, discriminatory, or in bad faith. And it cannot be exercised in a manner, most importantly, that's contrary to law. And so management does not have the right to discriminate. Management does not have the right to violate the charter when the charter applies. And so, and, and in a case of this particular nature, management does not have the right to interfere with a reasonable expectation of privacy which is created and established by the application of the charter to the school boards in the same way as management does not have the right to discriminate contrary to section 15 or to interfere with religious freedoms or the freedom of association or any of the other charter rights. So management rights is, if there's nothing else, if there's nothing else that stands between the employee uh, and management but management rights, then yes, potentially, management rights would prevail. But the number of times in which that is in fact the case, especially in you know our complex environment that we now live in, is extremely limited, is extremely limited. Um, I would like if the court would permit me to just make a couple of comments about the facts of this case because, because my friend, uh, Mr. Cesario, has you know, talked about uh, the fact that these uh, teachers communicated uh, the nature of the, of the document itself to others. And let me be very clear in terms of the facts. You know, no need, obviously, but paragraphs 143 to 145 of the arbitrator's decision, The arbitrator states what the genesis and the purpose of this log is. And specifically, as my friend has fairly conceded, it was something that they were advised to do by their union because of concerns they had. And the arbitrator specifically finds that at paragraph 143 to 145, it was a way to share their concerns, experiences, perceptions, and frustrations in the fall of 2014. Very much personable. personal. They treated the document as a personal and private diary. It was only accessible, editable, and viewable by the grievors. Now, the fact of the matter is that by the time the principal discovered the diary, or the log, as the case may be, its existence was known because of the fact that uh, one of the entries, one of the entries, had been read by one of the individuals to a teacher within the grade two group, and uh, office administrator had overheard some comment about the log. But that is it. That is it. And if one, if and there's no again need to turn it up, but at tab one we have excerpts from tab one of our condensed book but at paragraph uh, 86 um, it's fundamental to note that even though the principal knew about the log in paragraph 86 he said he in cross-examination mr. Pradegrew conceded that by December the 9th he had heard of the existence of the log from two of his staff two of his staff these are the two identified but did not know exactly what to expect maybe in it. And so to the extent that my friend suggests, well, everybody knew about it, it's just not the case. The principal had no idea what might be in it. And at the very last sentence of paragraph 86, Mr. Predigrew conceded that there was no prohibition against an employee keeping personal, reflective notes on a board computer. The only thing that he was concerned about, and just before that sentence, is whether there was a contravention of board policy and whether the log was being maintained on school time on the board's Google Drive, which we know was not the case. So that's the first point I, I want to make. The second point I'd want to make in terms of the facts is that the, the this, this was not the computer, and the log were not in plain view in any way. When the principal went in to the classroom, the day after he learned that there was no um, log on the board drives, he saw a black screen. It's nothing open, it was a black screen. And he touched the screen, and that revealed the first page of the document, which he then scrolled through and took pictures of. This was not in any way a targeted search. He didn't know what he was looking for. He didn't know he would find the log there. And so he, knowing, he, he said that in paragraph 91 of the decision, knowing about the diary was, would mean it was not a private document or that anyone could access it but that they were entitled to maintain that private diary. And at paragraph 91, again, he makes reference to the fact that he's concerned about the school Wi-Fi and the school computer. So this is not uh, something which is causing a significant, to, to pick up from Justice Jamal, this is not causing significant disruption within the learning environment. They're talking. There is not, I I concede, the team is not working well. At no point, at no point is there any evidence that the students aren't learning. At no point is there any evidence that the instruction is not proceeding. There's no evidence that the parents are concerned. And most importantly, there's no evidence that the principal says, you know, let's get together and see if we can talk about this. Instead, what we have is going to a search of the Google Drive, the board's Google Drives, which reveal nothing, and then the discovery of the log. And the last point I wanna make in terms of some of the facts before we get into the specific four areas of concern is that the arbitrator is dismissive or fails to address the privacy interests of the individual who did not leave the computer open. Uh, Ms. Shen uh, did and somehow the arbitrator concludes that she was the main proprietor of the, of the uh, document, and then therefore concludes that because her privacy interests were diminished, and we say inappropriately so for reasons that I'll come to it, perhaps, because her privacy interests were diminished, therefore the privacy interests of the other individual, Ms. Rye, were also diminished. And that just is not consistent with any appropriate interpretation of how one views communications between employees or persons or the way in which this court is viewed the difference between one individual saying i will give up my privacy but not enabling
3: them to do so for another individual the, uh, the, the, the fact that there wasn't any discussion about the issue um, i would be interested in hearing about that a little bit because I presume that goes to the reasonableness of the intrusion, because um, something like a search uh, should really only be undertaken when less intrusive options uh, don't yield anything. So uh, it's it's sort of a progressive escalation of of intrusiveness. So you start by meeting with the, the teachers and say, uh, but if, the, he, if he had done that, uh, and there had been more information, it may justify the search. But when you haven't even spoken to them, you don't go to the nuclear option of searching computers. Is the is the, is the point? Is it? No, I,
14: I, Justice Jamal. Precisely. I mean, number one is, if you know your team isn't working, and if, as Mr. Cesario points out, Section 265 of the Education Act you know, gives the employer not only the right but the obligation to ensure coordination and cooperation amongst the staff the first thing to do is to try and address the issues that are causing a lack of coordination or lack of cooperation amongst the staff talk to them don't go on rumors and if you read the arbitration decision which i know the court either has or certainly will there's all kinds of things going on it's not just it's not just uh Uh, the male teacher or the experienced teacher that's talking it's also the individuals themselves the two teachers that are saying this isn't working we're not you know able to do what we should be doing and the principal doesn't do anything except because he knows or hears that there's a log or some diary first of all surreptitiously takes the computer and causes it to be searched and then because he needs to have evidence of the log, does his scanning and photographing. The log is not the problem. The log does not reveal or resolve the concern. The concern is an interpersonal relationship. And knowing that individuals, when he goes through the log, are recording, as I've said, their frustrations, their observations, their concerns, They're entitled to do that. They're entitled to engage in a personal exchanges of this nature. But it doesn't in any way. It doesn't in any way address the core concern, and that is the team isn't working well.
5: Is is that a relevance argument? That it's not relevant to the duty under 265? I mean, Justice Sachs starts her reasons by saying that uh, employees should be disciplined for what they do, not what they think or say in a private communication and ends the same way. Right. And there's an echo of that in the Court of Appeal decision as well.
14: And there's an echo of that in terms of what the submissions that, I, that I've just made. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, to use Justice Jamel, uh, I don't know if i go so far as to say the nuclear option, but certainly quite an extreme option of, of seizing a computer or, or a log, which he knows is not in any board drive. Uh, it, certainly that's not the first step. Certainly that's the last step. And so before you get to the whole issue, of whether in fact the law is even something that he ought to be interested in, you go to the first issue is whether you can otherwise resolve the the, uh, disagreements, the lack of communication amongst the staff. That's a fundamental issue that the arbitrator doesn't really come to grips with. Um, If I may take uh, the court into a slightly different direction, subject to what You'd prefer to do I, I need to address the question that is really raised squarely for the first time about whether the Charter applies uh, to school boards and um, it's actually quite a, a remarkable position that my friends are taking here uh, and I quickly point out that they are coming here as the York Region District School Board and there is no support by any other school board or any other school board association for the position that's being advanced. And the position that's being advanced, as we point out, and just for the purposes of your notes, we address this in uh, our factum at paragraph 65 to 113, and at tabs three to six of our condensed book. Uh, as we point out, the application of the charter to school boards has either been accepted or assumed or conceded by virtually every court that's had to address it. And there is no appellate court that has found that the charter does not apply to school boards. And indeed, as we pointed out in our factum, this court in three cases has concluded that the Charter applies. Uh, The three cases which are listed in our our factum uh, are the Multani case uh, with respect to the prohibition of the wearing of a religious kerpon, whether that violated a freedom of religion, AM, which addressed the issue of detention of of students while a dog sniff was uh, being undertaken. So the question of section 9's application was addressed by this court and Rose Devant, which is a case involving minority uh, language rights and the question of the application of the Charter in that respect. And those three cases are discussed in paragraphs 91 to 93 of our factum.
3: What do you Uh, say to Mr Cesario's uh, point that if you go under branch one, then you're going to be capturing a whole bunch of other ordinarily non-public, non-governmental activity? Which are the
14: same? Which are the same activities that you'd be capturing in a municipality, which are the same uh, activities that um, that are undertaken by the city of Toronto, which, for example, which this court has had recent you know, opportunity to address and obviously uh, establish that it was a creature uh, of the municip- of the province. The key is, if I say respectfully, that if uh, and I and i come back to what justice roe said if on day one it's done by a school board and on day two it's done by an assistant deputy minister in terms of running the the educational institution it makes no difference because given the obligations uh, under the constitution acts uh, to provide for education at a um, a provincial level uh, that the uh, obligation to do so is governmental and that the government has chosen school boards in Ontario, as, or district school boards as they're called, as one of the mechanisms to do that. One of the mechanisms to do that. And if I might say that um, we have in our material the the God Boot and the Chamberlain um, issues, so we've, we've identified them. Uh, they're in our condensed book of, of, of uh, of, uh, that's provided to the court but in paragraph 75 to 83 of our factum we acknowledge that no single factor is determinative but when you take the totality of the factors and you take all of it into consideration beginning with the fact that they are elected that school boards are elected on the same basis The same constituencies and responsible to those constituencies as municipalities, it would be a significant departure to suggest that somehow they are not governed by the Charter. Let me give you another specific example. Under Section 23 of the Charter, there's protection for minority language rights, clearly uh, put in, and the ability to be educated in accordance with Um, prior experience and so on under Section 23. If the challenge is that the province has done something to impact the minority language rights, obviously the charter applies. If the challenge is that a school board has done something to affect minority language rights, my friend's position would be the charter doesn't apply. And therefore that Section 23 protection only go so far as to apply if the province is acting. Well, that surely makes very little sense. Surely makes very little sense. And if that's the case, I mean, you wouldn't also suggest that the Charter only carves out some school boards, those delivering minority language instruction, uh, and and others wouldn't be covered by the Charter. The the, The other point that needs to be addressed is the consequences of saying the Charter doesn't apply to school boards. Uh, Our factum is replete and, you know, again, picking up on Justice Rowe's comment about a Charter-Free Zone. The issues that come before the courts or before arbitrators with respect to religion, with respect to association, with respect to discrimination, equity, equality, all of those issues, are fundamentally charter-based and to say that the charter wouldn't apply and doesn't apply to school boards where these very critical issues are being addressed on a a daily basis and I don't need to tell this court that, you know, right now the whole question of the relationship between, uh, you know, what schools do with respect to uh, issues of choice by students in, in, in terms of pronouns. I mean, it's very much... Uh, uh, but to listen to you, Mr. Yep. Goldblatt, it seems to me
6: that you're, um, you're erring on the side of branch one of Eldridge. Very much so. And, and so I ask it because Justice Huscroft so you know, protecting is, he recognized this court hasn't pronounced right. definitively, so he wants right. to make sure he doesn't say something that causes a problem that doesn't need to. So he says, well, it could be one, it could be the other. And he points out that the government, the school board performing the the paragraph 41, government activity of maintaining proper order and discipline echoing uh, 265 of the act, that would be, looks like a government activity. But I'm inclined to your view um, that we should err on the side of nature. If you go back to Eldridge, paragraph 45 of Eldridge, mm-hmm. the idea that a specific scheme or government program is what the, the activity issue is, allowing you to separate private activities, I suppose, from government activities, we're, we're not in that. We're really, it's the nature of a school board.
14: Right, I uh, think the inherently governmental nature of school boards, and, and, and that excerpt from Eldridge is, is found at tab three of our book. And, and because
6: Justice Rowe evoked this earlier today of the diversity of the ways in which school boards are organized across the country, the Ontario school boards here, this is what This is what's front and center for us. This is a question of constitutional law that needs a final answer from this
14: court. I, I agree, I agree, Justice. I mean, let me just make, if I could, um, two points. I could argue this case on the second ground of... Of eldridge as you say be, based on section 265 of the education act there's also part 13 of the education act which addresses discipline and conduct uh, and there's also what we refer to as a policy and procedure memo number 128 which provides for uh, the uh, schools all to have this comes from the province and which requires that all schools have a code of conduct that applies to everybody and so if one takes a code of conduct and section 265 and part 13 together in respect of what is happening here, then yes, you could say that uh, the second branch of the Eldridge test is met. But I, but I put that very much in the, in the alternative because it is such a fundamental principle uh, to my client and certainly in terms of the interpretation application of the charter that school boards not be charter-free zones, that school boards be within the scope of what is a governmental actor and that all of their conduct be viewed as being under the scope of the charter. My friends, and I just, I need to just bring these to your attention because my friends didn't. My friends have given you two, two cases uh, from uh, Alberta, uh, Queens bench, uh, Hamilton and O'Malley. Uh, with respect to the only authority where a a court, it's the only ones they they could rely on, where a court has held that the charter does not apply to school boards. And what they haven't provided you, and I'm going to give, because you've now got the cases, is paragraph in O'Malley, paragraph 124, where the court says, any charter argument has no bearing upon the issue of O'Malley's disqualification. Paragraph 123, The charter issues have nothing to do with whether he breached the conflict of interest provisions contained in the School Act and paragraph 126, nor is the charter issue of any relevance to the common law disqualification. And then the other case is Hamilton, and that is picked up in paragraph 14. So the only cases that my friend relies on are cases in which the court specifically says we don't have to address the charter issue. And the cases that we rely on, and um, and the—I know, for example, the British Columbia Teachers Federation, which will be addressing the uh, the court, uh, also brings to the court's attention, consistently apply the Charter to school boards. And what's interesting is, we didn't have to be where we are today in terms of, as Jessica Sears says, you know, we have to decide this, but on the because. The York Region District School Board could have said, you know, for the purposes of this case, let's assume the Charter applies. and made very much the same argument as they made before the court today. But instead, they've, they've taken the position it doesn't apply. And so the issue is now squarely before you. And if it's squarely before you, I say respectfully that based upon the Godboot factors, based upon the Chamberlain uh, application, and based upon the consistent... Uh, determinations of virtually all the courts below with respect to the application of the Charter based upon the consequences that will befall if the Charter doesn't apply to school board and based upon for example as I've indicated the inherent contradiction between section 23 uh, and the, the Charter not applying to school boards it is time I say respectfully for this court to say determinatively the Charter does apply to school boards
8: in Ontario or across the country.
14: Well, I would say across the country. I think I would say across the country because I because as you'll hear and as you'll see if you look at all the material, it has been consistently applied even in, even in the, in the Alberta cases in the higher courts, not in the two cases that my friend has brought forward. I when you when you look at all of the factors, uh, whether you know whether it's the Chamberlain factors or the Godbout factors, they exist regardless of the province they exist regardless of the jurisdiction i mean I, it'd be easy for you to say in ontario but i think certainly in ontario but i don't think the charter can apply to some school boards and not to other school boards given
0: i think it depends on what the criteria are that one relies upon to make the determination i mean in well, some provinces um, they're just set up differently right. and if you say that they come under uh, 32 by virtue of those specific characteristics, Mm -hmm. then you can have some in and some out. I understand your argument to be of a different nature, or of a different character, that school boards carry out a public policy function for governments in the delivery of educational services. And this is common to all school boards in the country and on that basis, we can make a general determination.
14: I, correct, uh, I, I agree. And, and it, it has its genesis in, as I say, the you know, Section 93, for example, of the Charter, we've identified in our, uh, uh, the Constitution Act, we've identified in our material, the uh, historic, put it, the historic compromise of addressing uh, linguistic rights and denominational rights in terms of the creation of Canada, School boards are fundamental uh, in this country, and school boards deserve charter protection across the country. I'm sorry, I don't... Justice, did you have a question or no? Okay. Um, Now, with that that statement, then I'm going to very quickly uh, look at the question of the standard of review, to the extent the court wants to hear about the standard of review, because if the charter applies, then um, you know, quoting and relying upon uh, also in our material, uh, former Chief Justice McLaughlin's comments in Trinity Western, uh, which is found in our condensed book, you can have a different application of the standard of the, of the charter principles. Uh, they've got to apply consistently and they've got to be applied correctly.
6: You'll have to address Attorney General Canada's submission where they say that beyond the section 32 point, Mm -hmm. which there was a semblance of acknowledgement that that, that's a question of constitutional law that should attract uh, correctness, that for the the application of, in a particular factual setting, section eight, that's exactly the kind of thing that even Vavilov leaves to the, general presumption of reasonableness.
14: And we actually have addressed that position of the Attorney General of Canada in our reply factum. Um, We take the position that the standard is correctness. We recognize that the standard this is found in in paragraphs 2 through 5 of our reply factum. Um, We recognize that Canada has taken the position that uh, there should be uh, standard of reasonable supply, but at the end of the day, we submit that this may be more a matter of form uh, versus substance, because a reasonableness analysis under Vavilov requires that there be uh, an intelligent, transparent, justifiable uh, reasoning to the issue before the arbitrator, uh, that the decision fall within the scope of what may be a reasonable uh, outcome and in respect of the case before this court for the reasons that we've identified in our factum the decision cannot stand as being reasonable and that's their...
6: that's great for you in your case but you know we have
14: tomorrow <laughs> and the next day to worry about and if we end up
6: expanding the compass of the Vavilov exception between 55 and 57 it's, uh, it's not enough to say well in York Regional, all we really meant to say is it didn't really matter on the facts of that case. So, so I guess the question that Canada puts to you is, is this the kind of constitutional question imagined by yes. the exceptional regime of Vavilov that requires a final answer from this court, or because of the factual, what's the word, matrix, we should leave the door open to administrative decision-makers to do it on a
14: case-by-case basis? Well, I mean, even if you were to make a final determination, I'm sure that lawyers would find a way to bring it back to your attention through some sort of an argument. But I would submit to you that uh, where we are in terms of the application of the Charter, uh, and given the um, uh, language used by uh, former Chief Justice McLaughlin, I think you do have to have a standard of correctness in terms of the application of the Charter, that the Charter has to be correctly applied.
4: Mr. Goldblatt, so uh, I understand your point about correctness, but you seem to say that even if we would apply reasonableness, uh, we will arrive to the conclusion that the decision of the arbitrator was not reasonable. Uh, How can you uh, reconcile this with the, the answer you gave to my question at the beginning of your submissions? You said that the arbitrator approach was consistent with the charter yes. and that when she did her analysis, she respected the principles of the charter. Yes. If you said that, how can you say that uh, the decision is unreasonable, if because, we apply the reasonableness?
14: Because then? While, while she identified mm-hmm. the principles that needed to be addressed, the reasonable expectation of privacy. In applying those principles, she uh, was unreasonable. I mean, it's one thing to say, this is my roadmap and the roadmap is consistent with the principles, but when I apply those principles, she did so in such a fashion in respect of the four main areas that we've identified as to lead to a decision that is not justifiable.
3: Well, that's different though. Uh, I think because you, you sort of in your reply factum, you've, you've assumed the problem away by saying a decision maker must apply it in accordance with the relevant jurisprudence. If they fail to do so, mm-hmm. their decision will be unreasonable. Yeah. That's a different, you, you're basically saying that the standard is correctness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not re- but that's, if, well, if, if there's a category error, if we just use that term, because you've, got in your condensed book a whole bunch of so-called category errors yes. in, the, in the application of the Section 8 balancing. That's a different matter than saying that the balancing, provided you apply the pro- proper framework, is entitled to deference and is subject to a reasonableness review. Is, that's, that's a different...
14: Uh, well, I think, I think I answered, Justice Kucera, that I'd with the position that you have to interpret the Charter correctly, that the correctness is the standard. And then justice cote asked me how i could reconcile that with what i said earlier in terms of she had identified the principles and i believe i say respectfully justice that you you put the proposition assuming that reasonableness is the standard how can you say
15: no no but i think that, that
14: was our, that is what i was responding to i mean if it is a reasonable standard which i'm not i'm not you know, saying it is. But if it is a reasonable sta- reasonable standard, for the reasons you've, I- you've identified or we've identified in our condensed book, that standard is not met in this particular case for uh, have, a number having, of reasons.
0: Having re-read Vavilov, as well as having had <clears throat> some in- involvement in it, but having re-read Vavilov, one, another way of reading the, how the uh, correctness category relating to the Constitution is framed is that there are certain general framework issues that need to have a consistent uh, application which is distinct from the application in a myriad of circumstances. I I, I don't think it would be plausible to say that the particular determination relating to the facts of this case affects the framework of, of, of the constitutional structure and if that is what, if that is what is meant to be captured in Vavilov, and that's a certain reading that uh, I find um, 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 uh, consonant, shall we say, with the remainder of the reasons, then then it, you 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 make the distinction between 32 and whether the charter applies, and whether, in the particular circumstances of this case. Section 8 was infringed. I'll leave it at that.
16: Yeah,
14: oh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, let me, uh, if, I, if I may, just uh, briefly and to the extent, uh, identify the four errors. And I just will do this very quickly in terms of reasonableness. Can uh, I ask you
3: just about, before sure. you leave standard review, about the relationship between the Doré and the Vavilov framework?
14: Right. Um, I join with my friend, Mr. Cesario, on one of the few things we agree upon, I don't think Doré is engaged in this particular case. I say that with greatest respect for Justice Sachs. Um, I uh, adopt the position taken by the uh, Court of Appeal that the the question wasn't whether the arbitrator infringed upon the Charter rights but the question is to whether the principal infringed upon the Charter rights. And so I, I say notwithstanding the fact that Uh, Many of the interveners are looking for the opportunity to sort of ask you to clarify, Dore. Respectfully, this may not be the case from our perspective to do that.
8: But to the extent that the arbitrator is doing precisely the kind of balancing and proportionality analysis that has to occur under Bavilov, why isn't Dore at least instructive or helpful? Um, And and, um, why wouldn't it fit there um, and especially i mean i know that uh, there's been some argument that doré would not apply to a right that it has an inherent limitation one could argue the complete opposite is that uh, it, it, the balance if the balancing wherever the balancing takes place whether in the, in the right itself or at some justificatory stage it, that shouldn't matter
14: But if you were to do the Dory analysis, then at the end of the day, one has to balance the question of whether it was a reasonable infringement, which gets us right into the very issues as to how the arbitrator determined the reasonableness of what was done by the principal, which leads to the four errors that are part of what I was about to address.
8: But I I guess what I'm saying here is given that there's a balancing that's taking place under Vavilov in any event, um, under, you know, justification, intelligible reasoning and the like, what does it matter if Doré does or does not come in? I mean, I I don't...
14: Well, I mean, the question I was asked was whether, in fact, what do I say about Doré? I don't think this is a Doré case. And to the extent that you're doing the balancing... It may not matter then if, if Dory does come in, but you know, my, our position is, this is not a, ca- a case where Dory is engaged. This is not a case where the uh, arbitrator is the um, one who made the determination or who infringed upon the charter, such as the balancing takes place. That was done at the principal's level. So I'm just trying to uh, be, be very candid with the court is that to the extent that um, the court is, and I'm sure you're not, looking for an opportunity to try and address the Dore Vavilov balance, this is not, I say respectfully, the case to do that. Is that in
5: part because the issue before the arbitrator was just a straight question of whether there was a breach of privacy and it didn't then weigh into some discipline kind of decision where in fact charter values would be weighed against other labor related objectives.
14: Well as, as has been pointed out by the time we were at the arbitration the discipline was gone and so the parties were interested in knowing the extent of what is the privacy interest and the protection of those privacy interests in the school board and whether the actions by the principal violated that reasonable expectation of privacy and so that's right I mean that's why we don't need to engage in that second step or third step, as the case may be, with respect to the DORI analysis. Um, to try and be very brief with respect to the, the four areas, uh, the one area is with respect to the biographical core. I think that that is very completely addressed in our factum. Um, I think the I say respectfully that the Court of Appeal has identified uh, very uh, clearly the nature of the biographical core uh, and that uh, the arbitrator, in requiring that the biographical core address specific issues, that these specific issues were not found in the log, has actually misread uh, the decision in Plant and following with respect to biographical core. But one only gets there if one is allowed to look at what is within. the the log itself and that comes to the question of content neutrality and the principle as enunciated in our condensed book and as articulated by the court of appeal is it's not what you do find when you look into the log it's what you might find and you can't use as the arbitrator did what was found in order to say, well, that's not close enough to the biographical core because that's not the question. The question is what might be found. And once the arbitrator had identified at the outset of her decision, as I pointed out to you in terms of the statement of fact, that the purpose of this diary was to allow the teachers to communicate with respect to their frustrations, their perceptions and their views, as to what was going on, then she ought to have known that what might be found, what might be found in the log was something that the principal ought not to have been entitled to enter into an inquiry in respect of. He didn't know, he had no idea, but she knew and therefore she made the error in saying what was found was not close enough to the biographical court. That was not the question. The third point is with respect to plain view. This is not a case like Cole. The case of Cole was where the, the IT, person maintaining the IT, in the course of trying to determine why the, there was uh, a heightened amount of activity on Cole's laptop, discovered the pornographic images he was engaging in a legitimate exercise that the court of appeal um, endorsed and it was apparent it was obvious before him in engaging in that exercise in this particular case the principal was not engaged in a legitimate exercise the the, see, the document was not in plain view the computer was blank and even if, and I, don't, I don't accept this, but even if the fact that uh, one uh, shot was available, certainly it did not give him the uh, latitude to engage in a 20-minute search and screenshot of the remainder of the log. Um, and the fourth point that I, that I make is with respect, as I said at the outset, with respect to the fact, oh, sorry, in that regard, uh, I would just bring the court's attention to the McGregor case and the recent decision of this court, which is again in our uh, consolidated, uh, uh, condensed book of documents. Um, and then the last point is with respect to what happens uh, with uh, the other individual, Ms. Shen, and the extent to which there was absolutely no uh, acknowledgement of her privacy rights or the ability to protect those privacy rights And in that regard, um, we take you to just the last tab in our our condensed uh, book, uh, Decision of Justice Karakasanas in Reeves. And I would just uh, point the court uh, to the uh, excerpt at paragraph 41 of that decision. The consent of Reeves' spouse, and that is the consent of, if we may say, Ms. Shen in this particular case, cannot nullify a reasonable expectation of privacy that he would otherwise have in the shared computer. When we share a computer with other people, we take the risk that they will access information we hoped to keep private. They may wish to share that information. They find with others, including the police, but the reasonable expectation of privacy standard is normative, not descriptive. The question is not which risk the claimant has taken, but what risk should be imposed on him in a free and democratic society. Um, I don't accept I say very uh, strongly, I don't accept that Ms. Shen uh, consented or allowed or permitted uh, her privacy and her communications on that log uh, to be invaded, to be examined, to be photographed, and to be utilized in terms of a subsequent investigation and discipline. She did not consent to that. She inadvertently left the screen open when she left. We have no idea as to how long it would have been before that automatically shut down and we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. We know it's somewhere between 30 to 40 minutes. But she did not consent. And as this court has said, uh, Justice Cromwell has said, even the fact that uh, someone chooses not to password protect a computer does not give the right for someone to invade their privacy. And of course, as we've all uh, as identified in our material, uh, computers are of a unique nature, and raise, you know, heightened awareness by this court to the extent to which information contained on those computers can, in fact, reveal information that are, you know, private, confidential, personal, and ought not to be shared except in circumstances where there is a, a foundation established either in the criminal construct or in the employment construct computers
6: so, are no doubt unique but leaving one's handwritten diary uh, in the classroom as you rushed home by accident would yeah. raise many of these uh, these same problems
14: open, you know or or as this court has said you know leaving a handwritten diary in a hotel room you know when someone has the access to the hotel room or opening a drawer and seeing the diary doesn't give one the uh, right to invade the privacy and particularly so when we're dealing here with a communicative document and I'm going to stop unless the court has anything I else have with one... 14 seconds left oh, okay sorry, 14
8: seconds my... what ought the principal balancing the obligations under the education act and where you uh, say the privacy interest lies what ought that principal to have done
14: speak to the speak to the teachers the f- the fact that the fact that the computer was there i mean had, he had no right, he had no right to invade. What he did have the right is to try to resolve the issue, resolve the issue using his authority as a principal to speak with them, to try and see if he could deal with the matter. If he couldn't deal with the matter, he has the ability to move the teachers, he has the ability to reassign the teachers, he has the ability to put in um, you know, some assistance to the teachers to try to resolve it. Nothing that was taking place in that school at that time justified what he did thank you thank you very, very much. much thank you the court will break for
1: lunch we'll be back at 1:15. court la Thank you please be seated. Starlen
17: Chief Justice Justices Before the break we heard a number of questions about what standard of review applies to a charter infringement, assuming that the charter applies in this case. And the reason that we have those questions is that in Vavilov, although this court said that constitutional questions should be reviewed on a standard of correctness, it declined to reconsider the Doré-Loyola framework and to determine whether a standard of correctness applies when administrative actors violate the charter. This morning, you heard one view from my friends for the Attorney General of Canada. And on behalf of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, I'd like to give another view. And that's that a standard of correctness should apply for three reasons. The first is that it's actually most consistent with recent appellate jurisprudence, particularly at the first stage of the Dore Loyola framework. The first step of the framework is to determine the scope of a charter right, and whether it is engaged. And several appellate courts have recently said that correctness applies at this stage. And my friends for the respondent rightly pointed out that this court appears to have undertaken correctness review at the first step of the framework in Trinity Western. The trouble is that the court didn't say in that case, and it hasn't said in other cases explicitly what standard of review applies at this stage. And that's what leaves open to my friends, the Attorney General of Canada, to make the arguments on reasonableness that they have. This remains a live issue, but the BCCLA says that this court should affirm the recent appellate jurisprudence, affirm its own practice, affirm what professors like Paul Daly say about the first stage, and say that if a standard of correctness applies to constitutional questions, that has to include determining the scope of charter rights.
1: Stereo- Excuse me. Oh, sorry, Mr. <laughs> Arlen. Just a second. Uh, one question. There is, in um, when you look at section 8 of the charter, there is a built-in uh, reasonableness analysis. Does that change the, the final analysis um, in terms of standard of review?
17: Well, that's part of our submissions and part of why the BCCLA says that there needs to be a consistent approach because indeed Doré, Loyola, Trinity, Western were section two cases. And this is a section eight case. And under section two, infringements are easy to prove. The core of the analysis takes place at section one. Section eight's the opposite. The core of the analysis takes place at the infringement stage. And so if there isn't a consistent approach here, it means that, Section 2 might receive greater protections than Section 8 or vice versa if we don't have a correctness review that applies and give courts the opportunity to have the final say on the scope of charter rights. If I can give another uh, example of the issues
1: we can encounter. I think that uh, Justice Coté has a question for you.
17: Sorry, Justice Coté.
4: You are asking us to make those pronouncements on the Uh, But here, neither the appellant nor the respondent are asking us to apply Dory To the contrary, both of them, they agree at least on that, that this is not a Dory case.
17: Yes, thanks for that question, Justice Cote. And respectfully, what I would say is that at least with respect to the first step of the dory layola framework, which is to determine the scope of the Charter right, at least the respondents have said, they've said a correctness applies at that stage. Mm -hmm. And so they're impugning at least the first stage of the Dory layola framework. All that's required in this case is determining the scope of the charter right. And so they set aside the second step of Dory layola on the proportional balancing that takes place. But that first stage is still very much in play in this case.
0: Is the determination of the scope of a charter right in in the manner in which you've indicated takes place under the Doré framework, different in any way from the determination of a scope of the Charter right otherwise?
17: Well, what I'm saying is there is significant uncertainty about whether or not reasonableness applies at that stage. And we heard from my friends, the Attorney General of Canada, that reasonableness is what should apply there. We're saying correctness has to apply across the board, where there's a risk that two different decision makers or two different judges could come to two different decisions about the scope of a charter right and scope. The scope of charter rights has to rest with courts. Courts have to have the opportunity to, to have the final say on what the scope of a charter right is or what McLaughlin said, Chief Justice McLaughlin said in Trinity Western could come to pass, which is that Canadians will have different levels of protection depending on how the state chooses to delegate or wield its power.
1: All right, thank you
17: very much. I see my time, Chief Justice, so. Yes, thank you. Thank you.
1: Robin Trask.
18: Chief Justice and Justices, good afternoon. The BC Teachers Federation intervenes in this case to provide submissions on the issue of charter applicability to school boards. Our factum is organized under two main headings. First, we review the law in BC, addressing school boards as government entities, And second, we submit that the by-its-very-nature element of the test in Eldridge should be clarified. Turning briefly to our review of the BC case law, in 2004, arbitrator Monroe conducted a full Section 32 analysis in the context of a labor arbitration regarding teachers' freedom of expression, and concluded that the charter applies to school boards as government entities. This decision was upheld by the Court of Appeal, the BC Court of Appeal in 2005, and subsequent case law in BC has therefore developed on the understanding that school boards are government within the meaning ascribed to this term under Section 32 of the Charter. The development and application of this law over almost 20 years provides examples of how labour arbitrators can and do apply the Charter with differing outcomes regarding upon the alleged Charter breach and the facts at issue. The cases reviewed in our factum illustrate that the application of the charter to school boards as government entities has not created an undue burden for school boards. Since this court's seminal decision in Weber, labour arbitrators have the power and duty to apply the charter, and we say they are adept at doing so. Turning to our submissions on the test in Eldridge, the BCTF submits that when determining whether an entity is government Is a government entity by its very nature or part of the apparatus or fabric of government, the test should be clarified and simplified by reference to the entity's function and objective. In her dissenting reasons in McKinney, Justice Wilson proposed an approach to, to determining whether an entity was government for the purpose of section 32 of the charter that asked three broad questions about the control function and government objective at issue. Since uh, the decision in McKinney, this court has, in fact, considered government function and government objective as part of the analysis in determining whether an entity is government by its very nature. In Gabu, Justice LaFarey considered a variety of indicia that demonstrated municipalities are government entities, including that municipalities perform a quintessentially government function, and when addressing what is a government entity, at paragraph 47 of uh, the Godbooth Gubba, decision, Justice laferre said, where such entities are in reality governmental in nature as evidenced by such things as the degree of government control exercised over them or by the governmental quality of the functions they perform, they cannot escape charter scrutiny. It should be noted that finding the charter applicable to school boards does not predetermine the outcome of a particular case. The BCTF was simply advocating for a consistent approach to the threshold question of whether the charter applies. As in the BCTF views, given the government function and objective of school boards, the applicability of the charter should not be based on differences in how the school board itself is governed. The approach the BCTF is advocating for would also preclude the potential of governments avoiding their charter obligations by organizing school boards in a certain manner. In the TransLink decision, in concluding that TransLink was a government entity, this court identified as a principle, the proposition that a government should not be able to shirk its charter obligations by simply conferring its powers on another entity. We say this principle should also be a consideration when analyzing the application of the charter to school boards. In conclusion, the charter has been applied to school boards in BC for nearly the last 20 years. We say these decisions are sound, They ensure the fundamental protection of important rights and freedoms that the charter seeks to uphold and that this has not imposed an undue burden on school boards. The BC case law also accords with this court's jurisprudence when it has been assumed that the charter applies. By finding that school boards are government entities, no particular result is guaranteed in a a particular case, but the landscape of charter applicability is clarified. And subject to any questions, uh, those are my submissions. Thank
1: you very much. David Wright.
19: Good afternoon Chief Justice and Justices. It is a submission of the Center for Free Expression that courts ought in applying the tests used to determine the applicability of the Charter, give consideration to the underlying purposes and objectives of the Charter rights or freedoms at issue. To be clear, we are not arguing that the purposes and objectives of the underlying rights and freedoms alone determine whether the Charter applies to the body or activity in question. Rather, we submit that in applying the tests used to determine whether the entity at issue is part of the government or whether the activity at issue is a governmental activity, courts should consider and give weight to the charter-protected interests at stake and give consideration to the effect on those interests of a determination that the charter does not apply to the entity or the activity at issue. This court has held that in interpreting the scope of a charter right or freedom, attention is to be paid to the values that the right is designed to protect for the purposes of ensuring that a broad and generous interpretation is given to that charter right. The CFE urges you to apply this same principle in determining issues of the application of the charter in order to guard against overly narrow determinations of charter applicability. We submit that the interests which the underlying rights protect should be used to inform the determination of applicability of the charter. And it's our submission to you that the decisions of the Alberta Court of Appeal in the Pridgen and U Alberta Pro Life cases, which we, we review at paragraphs 34 to 41 of our factum, demonstrate that the consideration of underlying charter issues can mesh with the Eldridge and Greater Vancouver Transportation Authority tests and the contextual and purposive analysis of the entity at issue or its activities which was undertaken in those cases. In the decisions in Pridgen and U Alberta pro-life, the court gave consideration to the importance of freedom of expression in making its determination that the charter applied to those universities when either student disciplinary matters or student expressive rights were engaged. It is further our submission that consideration of underlying uh, charter rights issue is in determining the applicability of the charter is of particular importance in the case at hand, where the entity is a learning institution and where privacy and thus freedom of expression rights are in play. That would seem to suggest
0: that even private uh, schools would come under the charter, would it not?
19: It, uh, it would depend on, I guess, consideration of all the other factors and what is the, I, I think that private schools could potentially come under branch two of the Eldridge test. if. It, well, But they're not the, government. The activity...
0: I mean, you're, you're asking us to really depart from the text, forget the text, make up a new text and, and bring in private entities. Uh, that's rather a, a large step, I think. With
19: respect, to Justice Rowe, what we're suggesting is that if you look at the activity engaged in by a private school, it may well be determined that that is a governmental activity and as part of the analysis, we're urging on you simply that as part of that analysis as to whether or not the activity in question does fall within the range of governmental activity, that the underlying purposes at, of the charter at issue be considered. Thank you. At paragraphs 11 to 16 of our fact, and we've summarized the vital importance of and the wide protection for freedom of expression that this court has recognized. We outline at paragraphs 17 to 20 the importance of learning institutions uh, in the function of a free and democratic society. And we note, and this is at footnote 22, that communication and collegiality between teachers have been shown to improve pedagogy, to improve a school's educational practice, and thus the effective education of students. This case engages both privacy rights under Section 8 and freedom of expression under 2B. These are rights that are inextricably linked. Robust protection for privacy rights ensures robust protection for private communications and thus for freedom of expression. We submit that the court ought to determine that the charter applies to school boards as otherwise school board employers will have an overly broad power of search and seizure which would severely limit the privacy rights of teachers, affecting the ability of educators to communicate openly and collegially with their colleagues leading to a chilling effect on their freedom of expression. Chilling teachers' freedom of expression would undermine their ability to fulfill their societal responsibility to effectively educate their students. Without Without the privacy to explore new ideas or to explore concerns about their institutions, teachers' innovation will be narrowed, which will diminish the quality of schools and the quality of education received by students and we therefore submit that the court ought to find that school boards are bound by the Charter in order to robustly protect freedom of expression within schools and other learning institutions. Thank you, members of the court.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Andrew Loken.
20: Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. The Power Workers Union and the society represent employees concentrated in the energy sector, including employees of government entities subject to the Charter. I will make three brief submissions as set out in our condensed book outline. The first is that employees have a strong interest in workplace privacy. Work is central to our lives. We spend more than half our waking hours at work. Our employment is an essential component of our identity and self-worth. It gives us purpose. We have social networks at work. Employees are also a vulnerable group because there's a power imbalance between employer and employee. In light of these facts, employees require robust protection of their privacy. This is particularly true given the ever-increasing role of technology. Employees frequently have opinions about their supervisors and colleagues. They may choose to share them confidentially. These opinions can be highly personal. Granting the employer power to search such private communications and potentially to disclose them affects employees personally because it affects their workplace relationships and even their careers. An employee's interest in keeping such communications confidential is substantial, even if arguably not quite at the biographical core in the same sense as medical or intimate lifestyle details. My second submission is that Section 8 should incorporate arbitral jurisprudence on privacy, but that the analysis remains under Section 8 in private sector workplaces arbitrators apply a reasonableness test for rules or policies that impact privacy rights this jurisprudence is a highly relevant source for section 8 cases that arise in the workplace for three functional reasons first there's the strong conceptual overlap between reasonable analysis under the arbitral test and unreasonable search and seizure under section 8. second arbitrators commonly cite Section 8 cases under the reasonableness analysis. And third, arbitrators have developed a list of factors to apply, such as the employer's legitimate interests, the employee's privacy interests, and as well, and this is very important, the availability of less intrusive means to achieve the employer's objective. What happens if there's
0: a divergence between what the courts say Section 8 means and the arbitral tribunal jurisprudence as you refer
20: to it, which governs? So uh, if you're bound by the charter, the charter governs. And and, uh, uh, I'll just give the reference to Irwin Toy, which was an arbitral jurisprudence case, but that illustrated application of those factors. And this court upheld the arbitrator's decision, um, uh, having uh, uh, applied those factors and cited section eight cases. So that's a good example of the mesh. Uh, Arbitral jurisprudence does not replace Section 8 analysis. Where the charter applies, it must be given effect, and the analysis may differ. Charter rights are part of the Constitution, which is the highest law of the land. The danger of looking at privacy only as a contractual right is that it will undervalue the right. Contractual rights are intent-based, not normative, as Justice Jamal pointed out, uh, applies for the charter. And uh, with respect, I do disagree with my friend, Mr. Afram, that the arbitral cases we cite provide stronger privacy protection than Section 8. No employer agrees to stronger than charter uh, protection of rights. My third submission is that workplace searches must be based on reasonable grounds. For a search to be reasonable, it must be justified in the circumstances. And we suggest a number of contextual factors to be taken into account. Uh, First, what is the statutory basis for the search and how does the search relate to the specific statutory purpose that the employer relies upon? Uh, Second, what's the reason for the search? Is there any urgency? Is the reason compelling? For example, a search that responds to an immediate and compelling safety concern is easier to justify than a more abstract or distant concern. Third, what are the privacy interests engaged? Is the information that may be obtained likely to be of a highly private, personal, or confidential nature. Fourth, what are the consequences for the person searched? Do they face loss of employment or other discipline? Could there be resulting criminal charges? Will the search lead to disclosure of sensitive medical information or otherwise have serious effects, for Mr. example, Loken, you haven't specific- you haven't uh, specific-
3: Sorry. You haven't specifically addressed this, but could I take it from what you've said that you would uh, uh, approach um, a question of uh, reasonableness under the charter then if it's addressed uh, or should have been addressed by an arbitrator uh, without deference on a correctness standard uh, in light of what you've said or would you say that some some degree of deference would still be owed?
20: There is certainly deference owed on findings of fact um, on, on any standard uh, but the uh, arbitrator in uh, evaluating the scope of a charter right or in expressing the scope of a charter uh, right is interpreting the charter in a way that the courts should have uh, supervision, ongoing supervision on a correctness standard. I think that's the best I could uh, do. Uh, And I I just uh, wanted to mention the last of the uh, the factors that we think are contextually applied, again, to get back to less intrusive means. Uh, For example, you may have the ability to get uh, documents in the arbitration process itself by a production order, if they're relevant, uh, suitably um, uh, controlled for things like redaction and privilege and so on. So, subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Malini uh, Vijay Kumar.
15: Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. The National Police Federation intervenes solely on the issue of Section 8's application to public sector workplace matters, and will make two submissions on this issue. First, that we should avoid broad assumptions about the level of one's reasonable expectation of privacy based on their type of workplace. And second, that given the dual nature of the state as employer and penal authority, we should also avoid broadly assuming that Section 8 provides a lower level of protection in all non-criminal workplace matters. In making these two points, I will provide practical illustrations from the RCMP policing context. To my first point, that the level of one's expectation of privacy cannot be assumed from one's area of employment. We raise this point in response to the Court of Appeals statement that employees engaged in the policing or security sector, quote, May have lesser expectations of privacy as their employers may have a greater need for the authority to conduct searches and seizures in the workplace. End quote. And we would push back on this type of generalization with respect because the diversity of RCMP workplace environments illustrates that this is not always the case. An RCMP member might work in, a, in an office that resembles a nine-to-five corporate enterprise or they might live and work in the same trailer-sized building in a rural community, or they might be undercover and considered on duty to some extent every moment of the day. And each of these situations attracts a different reasonable expectation of privacy over personal information, a different characterization of employer need when it comes to searches and seizures, and therefore a different engagement of Section 8's protections. As a result, the totality of the circumstances test as applied to workplace matters should properly delve beyond the type of workplace into the specific individual circumstances at issue. To my second point, that given the state's dual status as employer and penal authority, Section 8 may require approximate or even equal standards of reasonableness between workplace and criminal investigations. As another example here, the RCMP's statute and policies governing employer searches and seizures actually do contain robust judicial authorization procedures and other mandatory safeguards, regardless of whether these searches and seizures take place in a workplace investigation context or as part of a criminal matter. And there are examples of these excerpts from statute and policy at page 5 of our memorandum. And this is because the RCMP's workplace misconduct investigation procedures are created with a potential parallel criminal investigation in mind, even if no criminal charge actually materializes. And therefore those statutes and policies assume a comprehensive requirement of reasonableness for those searches and seizures. That comprehensive standard of reasonableness dovetails exactly with this court's observation in Goodwin, that where a search or seizure has criminal-like features and potentially serious consequences for the individual, closer Section 8 scrutiny is required. Given these examples, I submit that we can and should question the assumption that Section 8 provides an automatically lower level of protection in all non-criminal matters where one's employer is the state, the closer potential of criminal jeopardy, which is extremely close in policing and security workplaces, coupled with the seriousness of the potential individual consequences, elevates the reasonableness standard for employer searches. So in closing, in my submission, the policing environment, which is a category of public sector employment, provides us helpful guidance on this issue. And that guidance leads us yes uh, chief justice
1: no go ahead
15: oh sorry i saw your mic turned on Uh, this guidance leads us to two conclusions first it reminds us of the importance of a truly individualized context-specific analysis of section 8 and second rather than automatically assuming that section 8 provides a lower tier of protection in a workplace matter we see how searches conducted by a state employer may realistically require a similar reasonableness standard in both workplace and criminal investigations subject to any questions from the court those are my submissions thank you
1: thank you very much caroline uh, jones
21: thank you um, the Ontario principals council is the exclusive bargaining agent of principals and vice principals employed in the english language public school boards in Ontario. And as a result, OPC is the bargaining agent for Ken Pettigrew, the principal whose actions in respect of the griever's Google log are at issue in the instant uh, underlying arbitration. And OPC intervened to address two specific issues. First, the application of the charter to the school boards. um, And secondly, the role of principals under the Education Act, and particularly the risk of conflating the role of the principal with the role of the school board under the authorized by law element of the Section 8 analysis. So turning first to the application of the charter, um, in the context of the school board, OPC uh, adopts and relies on the submissions that you have already heard today from Edfo, from BCTF, as well as uh, the Center for Free Expression insofar as opc's position is that school boards are inherently or by their very nature government and we won't repeat or um, re-echo those submissions to you today instead we'd like to take a minute to simply address a very narrow issue that was raised by the appellants and echoed in a question from this court to the respondents about the routine non-governmental activities that could be or or at risk of being swept in and under the charter in particularly in the context of a um of a consideration of a non-comprehensive assessment of the school boards as inherently governmental similar to the approach taken in mckinney and the university of guelph it but in the instant matter which is not a matter of uh, construction contracts or maintenance uh, matters it's an employment issue um, and These are not truly private contracts that exist between the board and the unions or the employees. Rather, in Ontario, the provincial government maintains routine and regular involvement across the employment terms and conditions of employees of school boards. And you'll see this set out in paragraphs 14 and 15 of our factum. The province is actually responsible for the negotiation of many of the key terms and conditions contained in the collective agreement and retains control over those central terms throughout the life of the collective agreement. So in practice, the school board functions to a large extent as a co-employer with the province, required to cooperate with the Crown, required to have certain settlements approved by the Crown, and to permit the Crown's participation in the grievance arbitrations over uh, significant elements of the matrix of rights set out in the collective agreement. Any effort in this context to disentangle the school board's authority over employment runs up against the enormous amount of authority that is vested in directly the province. And that would give rise in our submission to the somewhat absurd specter of having some aspects of employment. as non-governmental and removed from the application of the charter and others remaining clearly, directly governmental activity, directly uh, engaged under 32 and covered by the charter. Um, I'd like to turn briefly to the second issue that OPC has intervened to address. It arises in the context of the section eight requirement for a source of lawful authority for a search by school authorities. OPC comes to this issue with some caution the arbitrator the appellant the employer and even on occasion mr goldblatt for the respondent have adopted an approach to section 265 of the education act that sees the unique and relatively narrow construed powers of a principal as those of the employer however in our submission section 265 is not a catch-all source of authority for the school board employer to engage in searches of its teachers and staff rather 265, Section 265, grants to the principal and only to the principal in his or her own school, uh, the limited powers to maintain order and discipline and develop, develop cooperation and coordination. So it, well, the facts in this case suggest that the principal had and the findings of fact by the arbitrator that the principal had lawful authority under 265 to engage in a search of the griever's private google log that is not the case on a routine or ordinary basis in respect of the broad misconduct based interests of the employer that is searching the private realm of staff and teachers is not a statutory power granted to principals um, and by extension is not granted um, via the principal to the employer uh, I see that I'm out of ta- time. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you very much. Brendan McCarter-Stevens.
22: Thank you, Chief Justice. Good afternoon, Justices. EGAL intervenes in this appeal to provide submissions about whether and how the charter applies to school boards. EGAL's overarching submission is that although this case arises out of a controversy primarily between school teachers and a principal, we should not lose sight of the fact that educating and advancing the well being of students is at the heart of everything that schools and those employed by them do. As a result, in any comprehensive assessment of whether the Charter applies to the important work of school boards, meaningful consideration should be given to the perspective and interests of students and to how the powers exercised by school boards affect students who spend approximately half of their waking hours at school during some of the most formative years of their life. Under the umbrella of that overarching submission, we plan to address two reasons why the significant powers that school boards wield are exactly the kind of state power that the charter was intended to govern. First, cases like Blanco and McKinney indicate that powers of compulsion and the coercive power of government governance are important indicia of governmental entities under the first branch of Eldridge. If an entity's statutory powers of compulsion are fundamental to its role and permeate most of its functions, this should, in our respectful submission, lean towards a finding that the entity is part of government. School boards have significant powers of compulsion, most notably the power to enforce school attendance, and if a student does not attend school, they can be found guilty of an offence. Earlier today, Justice Rowe, Justice Martin, and Justice Kasserer asked, about the outside of Ontario implications of all of this. And so I note that these powers of compulsion are not unique to Ontario and indeed are present in school boards across Canada. Now, some parties to this appeal have sought to distinguish between the powers of school boards related to teachers and employment, which they say do not attract charter scrutiny, and the powers of school boards related to students and education. However, the difficulty with this position is that the distinction and this distinction is that students who are compelled to attend school are ultimately affected by the exercise of all of these powers. For example, decisions about which teachers to hire and even more relevant to this case, decisions about how to address allegations of a toxic workplace for teachers have both direct and indirect effects on students who are also key participants in the environment of the school. Accordingly, the coercive powers that school boards wield over students fundamentally permeate everything that the school board does. And this supports the conclusion that school boards are themselves part of government under the first eldritch basis. The second reason that the actions of school boards should attract s- charter scrutiny is because students and teachers from minority communities, including the 2s LGBTQ community are uniquely And are uniquely vulnerable to the statutory powers of compulsion exercised by school boards. These powers of compulsion directly affect the constitutional interests of these minority students in things like equality and privacy. In the Hansman appeal, this court recently recognized the challenges faced by trans and queer youth, including within Canadian schools. And given these challenges, many queer students and teachers understandably choose not to come out at school, or they choose to come out to only their closest friends and allies. If that fundamental personal choice is not respected, outing a queer person can have devastating consequences for their safety and well-being. As a result, queer students and teachers have unique and substantial privacy interests within schools that cut to the very heart of their biographical core. The policies and procedures adopted by school boards can have a significant impact on whether the privacy of queer students and teachers will be respected, including policies as we have seen recently in this country around parental notification of a student's chosen name and pronouns. It is not difficult to imagine a situation in which school records or an online log, as is the case here, contain information about a student or teacher's gender identity or sexuality. This information is deserving of robust protection within schools. The Charter can and should play an important role in protecting that information. Subject to any questions, those are EGAL submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Susan Ursell.
16: Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices of the Court. The Asper Centre's arguments consider the question of the appropriate analytical framework should this Court determine that a school board is not a governmental actor, as the appellant school board argues. And instead determines that like for example a law society a school board is a non-governmental actor working within a statutorily conferred mandate including a statutorily conferred mandate to manage its employment relationship with its employees but hang on now, isn't
0: isn't a school board fundamentally different from the law society I mean lawyers in private practice are, they're independent people they're regulated just like you know, anybody's regulated in society, where school boards, this is a delivery mechanism of the government.
16: I agree with you, Justice Rowe, that it's a delivery mechanism for the government. And the reason I mentioned a law society is because it represents one form of uh, involvement. We're, we're going to advance the Doré analysis, as you know. It involves one form of a situation where the court has seen fit to apply Doré and has seen that incursion into. Privately regular, or private activities through a regulator, through delivering regulatory services as an appropriate moment for a Doré analysis. I analogize, I don't say it's exactly the same, but I analogize here. And one of the reasons, and I've been thinking about this ever since your question about it, one of the reasons I analogize it is because of some of the things that have been said by other of my friends in the court about the fundamental role of schools in both delivering that service and delivering it to minor children and the level of government control over the employment relationship as is statutorily mandated in our Education Act as a result. So I I look at all these factors and consider the possibility that you view the school board as the non-governmental actor working inside a constellation of statutorily conferred mandates that are very, very comprehensive, including employment. Our arguments centre on the application of DORE and focus on when it will be an appropriate framework and what the correct standard of review is. As we note in our factum, there remains confusion around the context in which DORE should be applied and how. The Centre seeks to advance an interpretation and application of DORE and in doing so provides suggestions on where clarity could be found. Both the Doré analysis and the Oakes analysis start from the finding that a charter right is engaged in a certain context. In an Oaks analysis, the government has engaged a charter right. In a Doré analysis, a non-governmental actor working within a statutory mandate has engaged a charter right. Then the two approaches diverge. Oakes uses the well-known pressing and substantial and proportionality series of questions, DORE focuses on the last of these questions, proportionality between the statutory objectives and the severity of the rights limitation. Uh, We submit that the first step of any analysis is to determine whether it is a governmental actor or a non-governmental actor, and where it is a non-governmental actor. We propose the DORE analysis is appropriate for both administrative and adjudicative adjudicative actions of a non-governmental actor operating under a statutory or regulatory mandate those uh, considerations that go into differentiating between administrative and adjudicative actions and our further analysis that legislative actions are more appropriately viewed through an oaks lens even when it is a non-governmental actor are explored in paragraphs 21 and 22 of our factum in assessing decisions made using the doré analysis we also propose that the standard of review be correctness as many of our colleagues do in the court today, to bring this aspect of charter law into conformity with the Vavilov decision and to provide consistency in charter cases. To do so would also help to allay the concern that DORE, because it has in the past attracted a standard of review of reasonableness, somehow offers a lower standard of protection for charter rights and freedoms. We would suggest that a correctness standard allays that concern. The centre proposes a distinction between governmental actors and non-governmental actors for the reasons set out in paragraphs 17 to 20 of our uh, factum which particularly focus on the control a government has over legislative choices and implementation of them. We also draw this distinction from the perspective of the non-governmental actor since non-governmental actors must interpret and apply statutes and regulations which are themselves subject to charter review. It would be anomalous that an enabling statute or regulation be subject to the Charter, but in its interpretation and application by a non-governmental actor be be capable of a uh, a different interpretation that could violate the Charter. In order to avoid this anomaly, a framework for charter analysis of the actions taken by non-governmental actors under the rubric of legislation or regulation is necessary, and Doré provides a robust and appropriate framework for analyzing most decisions taken by such an actor. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you. Gerald Chan.
23: Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association focuses its submissions on Section 8 of the Charter, and more specifically on the principle of content neutrality. And to that end, I'd like to make three points with my time this afternoon. The first point concerns the rationale for the principle of content neutrality. This court has made it clear going back to Hunter and Southern in 1984 and following through to Wong in 1990 and more recently to America that the purpose of Section 8 is to prevent privacy breaches before they happen, not simply to remedy them after the fact. And that's because privacy, once lost, can seldom be regained. In order for Section 8 to fulfill its promise of being preventative, this Court must approach the question of whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in broad and neutral terms as the Court said in Wong without relying on the contents of what's ultimately found, without engaging in an ex post facto analysis. And so following this approach, the question should, be, should not be whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in a Google document used for private communications to express teachers' concerns about their colleagues, their students, what they're gonna have for dinner, et cetera. Rather, the question should be framed at a higher level of generality is simply whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in a Google Doc used for private communications, period. Uh, It needs to be focused on what would have been known to the state actor before they acted and not afterwards. Second point I'd like to make with respect to content neutrality concerns context. Because we say that content neutrality is fundamental to the purpose of the charter guarantee at issue, this principle of content neutrality is equally applicable in the administrative and regulatory context as it is in the criminal context. What may change with context is the strength of the expectation of privacy, the degree of the expectation of privacy, and therefore the specifics of what Section 8 reasonableness requires. For example, whether you need to get a warrant, whether the test is reasonable grounds to believe or reasonable suspicion or some other standard. But what cannot change are the fundamentals of how this court approaches the Section 8 analysis the framework to use Justice Rowe's uh, language in an earlier question. That section eight framework must remain because at the end of the day, if this is a section eight charter analysis and not an arbitral privacy analysis, the charter must govern and it must retain the core features of how we approach and interpret section eight. And after all the animating purpose of the charter guarantee, namely to be preventative, to prevent privacy intrusions before they occur is applicable regardless of the context in which you are interpreting this charter provision. And so just as the police should not be able to point to the contents of what they read in text messages as a reason for not getting a warrant in a criminal investigation, so too school board officials should not be able to do the same to explain why they didn't have to comply with Section 8 reasonableness, however you interpret and apply that constitutional standard in the school board context the third point i want to make with respect to content neutrality concerns its relationship with the principle that section 8 aims to protect the biographical core of personal information and i could do no better what this than what this court did in america where it said that in considering the biographical core factor the focus is not on the actual contents of the messages the police seized or searched, but rather on the potential of a given electronic conversation to reveal personal or biographical information. It's the potential that matters. That's the approach this court took America, that's the approach the Court of Appeal took in this case, and that's the approach we urge this court to reinforce. And the focus on the potential of this category of information to reveal information going to the biographical core is especially important in the case of private communications. Even more so than a general computer search because computers are often, as here, simply a portal to access private communications which may be stored in the cloud. Where you're dealing with private communications, it's especially important to focus on potential because they can include everything from the most intimate to the mundane, all interspersed in the same conversation. That's true whether the medium of communication is SMS, text messaging, or a Google doc. And if you adopt a content dependent approach rather than a content neutral approach and Section 8 only protects some parts of conversations, individuals will retreat from this form of expression and that is an approach that this court should not countenance. Thank, Thank you very much. Very much.
1: Amy uh, Nguyen.
24: Bonjour, <coughs> Bonjour, Monsieur le juge en chef. Bonjour, Madame et Monsieur le juge de la Cour. La Centrale des syndicats du Québec représente à peu près 200 000 membres qui incluent les enseignants. La centrale aujourd'hui intervient uniquement sur le droit à la vie privée développé en matière civile, puisque nous sommes d'avis que cette perspective pourrait aider la Cour dans l'analyse du présent cas, si bien sûr la Cour vient à la conclusion que l'article 8 de la Charte canadienne s'applique. <coughs> L'État québécoise a voulu accorder une grande protection à Des valeurs démocratiques et sociales et au respect des droits individuels et de la liberté de la personne par l'adoption de premièrement la charte des droits et libertés et par l'adoption du code civil et plus précisément à son troisième chapitre intitulé le respect de la droit de la réputation et de la vie privée avec ces outils législatifs un individu, individu est protégé non seulement contre toute intrusion illégale de l'État dans les sphères de sa vie privée, mais aussi dans ses rapports privés.
11: maintenant Nguyen, est-ce que vous voyez un inconvénient de transposer des, des dispositions du Code civil au contexte constitutionnel régissant des entités publiques, comme des commissions scolaires, si on accepte cette position-là? La, 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 la confection, la, l'article 35, 36 vise des rapports entre particuliers. Oui. La Charte québécoise a une autre vocation. Est-ce que vous ne trouvez pas que c'est une vocation qui, qui s'accommode difficilement avec le contexte qui est le nôtre
24: Enfin, non, parce que euh, les décisions que je vous ai soumises, euh, les juges se sont basés euh, sur les décisions de l'article 8 de la charte. Donc, les, 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 les tribunaux québécois puissent leurs sources dans euh, dans les décisions aux, aux criminels qui euh, ont été analysées sous l'article 8 de la charte, mais en plus le droit civil euh, a adapté tout ça en matière, <coughs> pardon, à la réalité des relations de travail. Est-ce que ceci répond à votre question? Bon. Donc, nous proposons à la Cour, dans l'analyse de ce dossier, de s'inspirer, un, de l'approche civiliste des décisions des tribunaux québécois et deux, de l'article transit du Code civil qui codifie à première vue les actes qui sont considérés comme une atteinte à l'appui privée. Donc, pour notre premier point, les lois du travail sont en droit civil sont voués à une justice sociale et ont une composante protectionniste destinée à défendre les travailleurs, qui sont souvent considérés comme un groupe vulnérable à la société. Cette finalité protectionniste euh, de nos lois du travail permet aux travailleurs d'être sur le même pied d'égalité que l'employeur. Par conséquent, considérant euh, tout ça, Les tribunaux québécois interprètent et appliquent de façon large et libérale euh, toute l'analyse sur le droit à la vie privée afin de protéger l'intimité des des individus et une des façons pour s'assurer de cette protection c'est que les tribunaux québécois ont inclus, ont accepté dans la définition du droit à la vie privée, notamment tout ce qui touche la vie sentimentale, le droit au secret et surtout le droit à la confidentialité. En somme, nous devons mettre à l'avant la dignité des employés dans l'analyse de l'étude du droit au respect de la vie privée. Pour notre deuxième point. Nous invitons à la cour aussi de s'inspirer de l'article 36.2 du Code civil qui est d'ordre public. Cet article est complémentaire à l'article 5 de la Charte et 35 du Code civil, et elle indique que toute interception ou utilisation d'une communication privée peut être considérée comme une atteinte illicite au droit de la vie privée. Et oui, est-ce qu'il y a une question
1: Non, terminé.
24: Non, ok. Euh, bon, euh, cet article va au-delà des fouilles et perquisitions et saisies abusives de l'article 8. Et pour conclure, j'aimerais attirer la, votre attention sur deux principes dégagés dans les décisions que nous avons soumises. Un, c'est il faut accorder davantage de l'importance à la nature des communications au lieu des véhicules ou médiums utilisés. Deux, il faut se placer au point de vue d'une personne salariée à chaque fois qu'elle échange la communication pour analyser l'expectative de la vie privée. Je vous remercie.
1: Merci Maître. Jared Will.
25: Good afternoon Chief Justice, Justices. <clears throat> I'm here today on behalf of the Queen's Prison Law Clinic and I'd like to spend my five minutes talking about Doré as it applies in the context of line decisions. We've adopted the phrase line decisions as used by the Court of Appeal for Ontario, denoting administrative decisions that are not made in an adjudicative context. Before I get to the substance of our position, I wanna take just a moment to explain why the QPLC believes that this is the case in which this issue can and should be decided. The appellant and the Attorney General of Canada are both taking the position that Doré applies and that the arbitrator's decision on Charter issues should be reviewed on the standard of reasonableness. The court below relied on Chief Justice McLaughlin's concurring opinion in Trinity Western that correctness applies to the question of the breach. As Mr. Harlan pointed out for the BCCLA, the question of the standard of review for the breach has not yet been definitively answered by this court. And in our submission, if this court is going to answer that question, it should take the next step and revisit Doré on the question of the standard of review for the justification for the breach. Why? Because if you apply the correctness standard on the breach and the reasonableness standard on the issue of justification, that raises a host of further issues, some of which were outlined by counsel for the BCCLA. Most importantly, the result is you end up with different levels of protection depending on which charter right happens to be in issue. The example before the court is that section two cases almost always turn on a section one analysis, whereas section eight issues are virtually always freestanding. So the QPLC has intervened in this appeal to articulate its concerns about the effects of applying Doré to line decisions. And in particular, it has concerns about the application of Doré to line decisions by prison officials. This of course is not a prison law case, but what we invite the court to consider is something that prison guards have in common with school principals and many other line decision makers. These decision makers are called upon to balance charter rights with their statutory functions, whether it's running a safe prison, keeping unruly lawyers in line, or managing a toxic workplace in a public school. The reality is that the more space that is taken up by charter protections, the more complicated it becomes for them to achieve the objectives that they were hired to meet. Running a prison that respects freedom of religion is just harder than running one that doesn't. As a result, these line decision makers lack independence, not only because there may be a clash between the objectives of their enabling statute and the charter rights in issue, but also because the decisions that they're making directly affect them as well. We've we've taken pains to address the issue of independence in our factum, and I would submit to you that the proposition that many line decision makers lack independence is is beyond dispute. The harder question is, does that mean that courts should or should not show deference to their decisions on charter issues? And in our submission in the wake of Vavilov, the answer has to be no. The court in Vavilov said that correctness review is required whenever anything short of correctness review would undermine the rule of law. This Court has also decided on more than one occasion, most notably in the 2013 Judgment in Criminal Lawyers Association, that the independent adjudication of charter rights is integral to the separation of powers and the rule of law. That means that deference to non-independent line decisions that effectively define the scope of the Charter's protections undermines the rule of law. Because it means that an incorrect interpretation of the Charter by a state actor will effectively diminish the scope of the rights in issue. I want to take just a few seconds uh, to address the submission by the Attorney General of Canada. I would reject the proposition that because a decision is case specific or fact specific, it doesn't raise rule of law concerns. It raises rule of law concerns for the reason I set out a few moments ago, because uh, there's an issue about the independence of the decision maker, but it also raises rule of law concerns because a, a finding that a particular outcome is reasonable effectively empowers other decision makers to come to the same conclusion. Those are my submissions, thank you.
1: Thank you very much, reply.
2: Thank you very much. Um, I was gonna say good morning, it's now good afternoon. Uh, Three submissions in reply, Chief Justice, Justices. First of all, um, my friend spent some time with the facts. While we disagree with his characterization or recitation of those facts, the more important issue is that given that this is a judicial review application, I commend to this court the arbitrator's analysis. We've picked out some of the key points in our timeline and outline in our condensed book but the arbitrator provide a detailed outline of the facts that set the context for this dispute and those facts are entitled to deference as is her application. A couple of key points within that. My friend read from the award about the nature of the log. What he was reading was not the arbitrator's findings, he was reading from Ms. Shen's evidence about her subjective, Uh, statement about what the log was being like a diary. The arbitrator never found that it was like a diary. The arbitrator's um, factual findings based on all the context is found later in the award, paragraphs 212, paragraphs 245. It's important to be precise. Likewise, questions about... is,
0: Is your general point, there's a difference between the evidence considered by the arbitrator and the findings made by the arbitrator drawing on that evidence?
2: Yes. Um, yes, precisely. And then, likewise, in terms of what the principal knew or didn't know at certain points in time, the arbitrator made specific findings about that at paragraphs, for example, 224 and 246. And let's remember that, unlike in a police search, where it's a binary question of the interests of the accused versus the interests of the state, the principal, for example, dealing with a toxic workplace environment, searching to preserve evidence has a number of considerations in mind, including the interest of all employees to a safe and harassment-free workplace. And we've heard many interveners talk about the interests of students that could be implicated there. So it's not binary, and the arbitrator knew that, and she made detailed and contextual considerations in that regard. Likewise, second-guessing, well, why didn't the principal meet with teachers? He did speak with both of the grievers and a number of teachers, And it was addressed in the evidence at paragraph 87 why the principal decided not to uh, meet with the teachers at a certain period in time. The point is we've got to be careful with the record and approach it uh, respectfully. Now, secondly, in terms of the privacy issues, and I apologize if I'm going quickly, in terms of category errors, the arbitrator didn't make any of the category errors that are alleged. The arbitrator did not, as the Court of Appeals suggested, treat the biographical core as a prerequisite to the protection of privacy. She couldn't have because she found that there was a reasonable expectation of privacy. She simply considered the closeness to the biographical core in the sweep of all the circumstances as this this court said to do in Cole. Likewise, content neutrality, as I said before, has to be seen in context. That's really a criminal concept that has different considerations Here, the more important consideration is accurately describing the subject matter of the search and not at too high a level of abstraction, and that's what the arbitrator did. She appropriately viewed the subject matter of the search. When she referenced the phrase plain view, she wasn't using it in some technical criminal context that we would think of as a police officer looking for drugs and seeing guns. Um, She was talking about uh, the contextual factors that spoke to the objective Um, reasonable expectation of privacy. Likewise in terms of the argument about well there were two grievers, well the case was argued in terms of different breaches that implicated different people's expectations of privacy at different times and that's how the griever argued and that's how the arbitrator decided it. And likewise I would point to paragraph 68 of Maraca which says that shared control and shared access can diminish a reasonable expectation of privacy. So the arbitrator's conclusion that there was a diminished expectation of privacy was not some kind of revolutionary, wacky labor arbitrator finding. It's entirely consistent with this court's decisions. Lastly, on charter applicability. Shouldn't be decided either by a show of hands in terms of how many school boards are here, nor on the Potter-Stewart kind of, you know, know, I know it when I see it. If it's gonna be the nature of the actor, We've got to run it through the principles in the case law. And it it is a a challenging case, but school boards ultimately do not have lawmaking authority. And therefore, they just don't fit within the construct of this court's principles in uh, Category 1 nature of the actor. And lastly, the arbitrator here wasn't interpreting the Constitution. She was accurately and fairly applying this court's principles to the constellation of facts before her.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you, the counsel, for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement.